I really spent a half a million on the house for granted. I'm really out here dancing. I'm really not romantic. I really got that petty. Hey, hey, I really know it's Eddie. I Hey, what's up? We're back. It's first smoke of the day. It's episode 47, and we're here in the backyard of my man, Chris Hickok, Alien at Law. How are you, brother? Hey, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Doing good, man. I'm excited for this. It's Pat God's in the building. Blackleaf here. What's up, Blackleaf? I'm excited about this one. This is my attorney, and this is one I've been waiting for. Yeah, for real. A lot of free game on this one, for real. A billion dollars worth of game. If your company's going to be something, if you ever think it's going to be something in the future... This is the stepping stone to actually doing it right. This is the stepping stone to when you get to sell your business or get to that exit, you exit properly with your trademarks in the right intellectual property mm. with all the right moves made, you exit the right way. If not, you end up exiting and the guy above you, the guy that loaned you that money makes way more than you. There's a lot of crazy exits where people who actually were the idea man didn't make the right moves. Mm -hmm. And now they're in a position where they wish they could do it again. Oh, yeah. Didn't read the fine print. You know, didn't talk to an advisor. Didn't get help that they probably definitely needed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to kind of explain some pitfalls, talk some legal, um, explain my story. Sounds uh, sounds good. Well, I guess where does it start, right? I mean, dude, we, we've, off, we've jumped through. I, I can honestly just touch on. This has saved my brand. You helped save my brand. I would have signed a deal already. I'm being Thank honest. You. I would Thank have signed you. a deal. And this is me already having the history of feeling like there's a lot of crazy people in this industry that want to take advantage of growers and hash makers and mm -hmm. legacy brands, guys that actually have the talent and the passion for this, mm -hmm. who put in the years before it got cool. Without someone like you, the passion will get you to sign a deal that's not right because you're like, I can outwork this deal. Mm -hmm. I can not take a salary and figure it out. I can. And this is this is across the industry. This is, you know, not just growers. This is hash makers. This is anyone with intellectual. This is someone with a great brand mm -hmm. that, that you know, just can source product right. Or just someone not even in cannabis. I mean, it's, there it's, you a, go. it's about understanding where you want to go um, and setting up your structure, your business structure, your contractual structure. Uh, to hopefully get you paid and living a good life as opposed to having to deal with litigation issues and more lawyers and more money. Um, so it all starts from the beginning and you do things right in the beginning. It makes it a lot easier as you move down that path towards success. I mean, let's start at the beginning. What was the first time you smoked weed? Cause you're uh, obviously the cannabis attorney for yeah, us. Yeah, a, weed, so, a weed smoking cannabis attorney. There's actually, really actually a, a, a quite a bit of them. I feel like <laughs> there, the, there if, is in California, yeah. but you know, other States is not as not common. As much, yeah. Um, no, I definitely smoke a lot of weed. Um, growing up, not so much. I mean, I was like an athlete playing sports all the time. Um, I started, was about to graduate high school. Um, so sports was over and, uh, you know, the story was, is around Christmas of 2006, I went to Buga de Beppo with my family, ate a big Italian meal, you know, all the food. I come home and me, my brother, my best friend and another friend are just sitting at home bored. And I was like, oh, you guys want to drink some Ipecac? You guys, you guys know what Ipecac is? No. Google Ipecac Family Guy. Basically, you give like a, a spoonful of it to kids who like drink things that they're not supposed to or like swallow like poison or something and it induces vomiting. So like... <laughs> makes you throw up. So me and my buddy drank a whole vial of each and I drank a red Gatorade. He drank a yellow Gatorade. And within like 15 minutes, you just like projectile vomiting. Like I'm at a dead sprint laughing, just vomit, just, just shooting out of my mouth. 
Um, but if you don't drink enough water after a while, you just start dry heaving like very hard, like, you know, like, and so I'm like in a lot of pain, just dry heaving for like 20 minutes. And my brother's like, look, look, I got something for you. So he goes upstairs, makes like a waterfall, you know, the water bottle and you take the top of a, like the middle part of a pencil, put a little weed in there, fill it with water, light it. You know, it sucks all the, sucks all the air out. Took a hit of that and like immediately just felt better. Um, Ended up watching the movie Waiting, uh, eat, ate the rest of Buca de Beppo and just like, was like, dude, everything Dare told me was just completely false. Like, yeah, you know, just like, <laughs> like they fucked my life up. They were wrong on, on so many levels on that. Um, so it was just like love after first smoke at that point, right? Like I was at the very low, just feeling so bad. And immediately as soon as it, you know, that smoke hit my lungs, I was like, fine. Um, so, you know, that kind of started my love for the plant. Um, you know, I was going to community college, hanging out with some friends and, you know, we, I live in Santa Clarita, which is like North LA. It's kind of a cannabis desert. There's not, it's a very conservative town. Um, when I lived there, it was like the 10th safest city in the nation. Um, when I left, it got up to six. So you know, I don't know if that's anything about me, but, um, so me and my friends, like we'd have to go on, I don't know if it was weed maps back in the day, maybe it was something different, but you could like Google like new patient uh, menus, right. Where you go to the new dispensary and it'd give you like a free gram or a free eighth or free gram of Keith. And like back then we didn't have a lot of money. So we'd have to basically just try and find these, you know, jump from dispensary to dispensary. And so we'd be bringing product back, um, to Santa Clarita and we'd be smoking with our friends and like, Oh dude, like next time you go, can you like pick me up a sack? So they give us some money. We go and we, you know, went from buying a gram to an eighth to a half ounce to an ounce. Right. And we're just like giving it out to our friends and, you know, as you buy more, you, you know, you, you save on the cost. And so we were basically doing just smoking free weed. Um, and granted, this was all legal because I was a medical patient. These were also medical patients. So I was supplying other medical patients with cannabis. So before the bar uh, tries to come at me with anything, you know, this was legal. Um, <laughs> so we're just giving these, giving all the product away, you know, smoking for free. And, you know, we kind of growing and growing and growing, building up our, our product and our clientele of, of other medical patients. Um, a couple other, my friends started getting inter introduced to growing, you know, they met a couple people that were into growing, like being in the, you know, in the grow rooms. Um, I was just good at school. I mean, I like to read, um, for whatever reason, I, it just clicked with me in school. Like I could read, I could fucking add up like motherfucker, you know, I was just in there doing it. Um, and so that's kind of where my path led me. Um, it just came easy. School came easy. Yeah, like I, I just, I just understood it. I was like, okay, I just got to read this and regurgitate it, you know. And as you get higher up in in education, I mean, you have to like then analyze and come to like different conclusions and come up with your own information. But you know, it's just it was just reading, and I like to read, so for me, it was it was easier. Um, and my other friends just really got into the the space of just cultivating, of selling, just being a part of that industry. And this was, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, and is this anyone we know now as a brand? Uh, not as a brand, but they are, we were almost like, like, so we all lived together and we were all kind of like selling, but we all worked at like back of house at the Hyatt, you know, so we all would just go there, just get high as shit and just like build event halls, you know, just all day, just all together. Um, so it was a lot of fun. You don't um, know you want to be a lawyer yet. No, I was just fucking smoking weed. Like every day was just about how do we smoke weed in a different way? Like rolling a blunt, like. We'd go to the pool and like take hits and hold, you know, hold our breath and like swim as far as we can, you know, just any way we can consume weed. That's what we were about. Um, but the other people you probably you guys probably know, I mean, I'm not going to put their stuff on blast, but, you know, they're brokers now. They're uh, cultivators, uh, 
their salesmen, you know, they're all throughout the industry. It was almost like we were this little like AAU team, um, you know, early on, like a little cannabis, you know, group just doing it for the love. And then as we kind of grew, we kind of hit up different echelons of, of the space and are all kind of in, in the space still. Um, so I, I left for school. Um, I went to UC Santa Cruz, um, which just kind of pushed me more along down the path of liking to smoke weed and, you know, being at a very, like, it's a very chill, very chill school. Um, I was a sociology major, which is like basically just the study of humans and how we interact, like how, how do we deal with each other on just a, a mass basis? Um, and just how we interact with each other. And, and I really enjoyed that. Just understanding why we interact certain ways. Like we interact differently now versus, you know, at a bank when you're in the line of the bank, right? There, there's like weird social rules that like dictate how you sit there in line, right? You're not like up in someone's grill looking at, looking at what they're doing, right? There's like these social rules. So I got really interested in how these rules kind of control us and without us even really knowing. Um, then from there, uh, you know, my dad obviously hated that I was going to do sociology because like, what am I going to do with my life after that? And through my research, I was like, oh, what about being a lawyer? So I took the LSATs, did pretty well, uh, sent out some applications, got some scholarships. So I got a scholarship to USF, San Francisco. I went there. Um, and through all this is go back a little bit. My first year in Santa Cruz, I went to Coachella. And we went with a, just a massive group. There's like 40, 50 of us, you know, just different groups, our friend group and their friend group and their friend group. And through that, we met Teddy from Alien Labs. Um, and I think at the time he was just working in like San Francisco doing um, like tech work. Um, so I don't think he was doing the cannabis. Like we, we just vibed, you know, we were just, you know, we would go to all the different concerts together, the different venues, the different go and get food together. So we Ted just was vibed. out raving at Coachella. You know, he was there smoking weed, you know, and doing <laughs> what his year thing. Was this? Uh, this was 2000. Come on, you, Ted. The first year, when Tupac, the Tupac uh, hologram. Oh, so I think, it, I think it was 2010. Wow. Ted's always been before his time. 2011, He's out there 2012. At Coachella. I didn't even make it to Tupac because Tupac, it was my first year. So that was a Sunday. I was just in my tent, just like hung over as shit. I heard him like, say, what up, Coachella? And I'm like, oh, I couldn't wow. get up for it. What um, year was that? 2011, I think, 2012. Yeah. Um, that was my it first was year who, at Coachella. Tupac, the There's hologram. Oh, the hologram. The hologram. Oh, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, no nah. one thought he came back because yeah, they're all like, on drugs. Nah. They're like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah you were fucked up. We knew he wasn't you, you there. You called him Tupac yeah. and you thought you saw him. <laughs> we definitely no. did. But you link <laughs> with Alien Labs and that starts. Oh, he wasn't even that at that point. Like, he wasn't. He I don't even think he was like moving weed. Like, he was just doing tech stuff, you know, maybe into weed. And then we went to get Coachella together for probably another five years, like every year, like we would just meet up at Coachella. Like it wasn't like we were texting throughout the year, just like at Coachella it was Teddy, Chris, you know? Um, and around 2015, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm in law school. And he's like, dude, I'm, I'm started a brand like Alien Labs. It's going pretty big. Um, you know, there's a cannabis law that's about to come through in 2016 that we're going to vote on. So do we need some help? We like, we need a lawyer. Like, I don't even know where to go. Like, can you figure it out? Can you do it for me? And I was like, okay, like maybe. And, you know, at this time when I was in law school, I, I didn't even really want to be a lawyer. I didn't like the culture. I didn't really like the people. Um, it's a very cutthroat place um, where you have to wear this mask of like almost superiority. Like, I don't know if you, you've hung out with other lawyers, you know, and they got their suits on and their wall of, you know, degrees and stuff. And it, I just, that, that's just never who I was. Um, so it was just hard for me to vibe with those people. So I thought I was going to go into teaching um, or something called social impact bonds, which is, uh, you know, for another time. Um, but Teddy was like, Oh, like we, cannabis needs lawyers. And I was like, I could do that. Like, that sounds cool. So I started Googling it 
this was pre 2016, right? Prop 215 days. And it was a fucking mess. It was just so confusing. There wasn't like, like it is now where you have this list of regulatory rules that you can just follow. It was just like these like case law you had to follow. And there's this coal memo from the federal government. And then there's, you know, these different interpretations. And so I was like, I don't, I don't even know how to help you right now. So I Googled best marijuana attorney in LA. Cause when I was going to graduate, I was going to come back to LA and Eric Shevin popped up. Um, and he's, you know, he's known in the courts as, as the Jedi, like he's gone into cases and just like waved his hand and people have gotten out of, you know, prison with hella packs on them. And then still gets their, still gets their weed back somehow. Um, I'm not even sure how that happened, but, um, yeah, he, so he was a goat when it comes to like criminal, criminal cannabis. So he had that network of all of the traditional market people in there, right? Cause he helped them get out of prison. Um, and so when I got there, I told him, I really just wanted to do like the business side of it because it was kind of turning. And at that time you had to form what was called like a nonprofit cooperative and you had to get like mm-hmm. patient members to sign it. And basically what you were doing was you were creating like this legal fiction that, you know, you, you, you'd create this system. It's, it's almost like a, a speeding ticket, right? Like most, most crimes are you're innocent to, to you proven guilty. But with a speeding ticket, like you're essentially guilty. You got to go to court and say, hey, I actually wasn't going that fast. And it was very similar to how the cooperative nonprofit system worked. You'd set up this nonprofit cooperative. You get your patient members and you'd cultivate for them or sell for them. Um, and when the police come, they'd come in and, you know, they'd fucking track, take down all your plants, you know, get rid of all the money. You know, some of it made it into evidence. Some of it didn't. Um, and then it would be up to you to go to court and say, oh, I'm actually like a legal entity that's allowed to provide uh, medicine for my patient members. And then the judge would say, if you had all the paperwork, all right, good to go. Um, you know, sorry for that. And see you later. You know, you, know, you wouldn't typically, you wouldn't get your weed back. You wouldn't get your money back, but you'd at least get away without having a felony. And so that was kind of the start of the system is kind of setting up these businesses. So at least to provide some protection prior to the legalization, because if you got caught, if you got busted with illegal cannabis or, you know, maybe some other thing, you might be kicked out of the industry because we still didn't really know how the regulations were all going to play out. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years, 2016 happened and you know, we voted on prop 64, which allowed for all of the, let me can- cut in though. Yeah, Let yeah, me yeah, cut yeah, in. Yeah, top in. So you Google Eric Shevin's name mm-hmm. and then you just say, okay, as soon as I graduate law, or is this you already graduate? And you basically say, I'm going to apply and go in and just try to get a position. Was it as easy as that? Um, well, I, I, I just sent him, they had like a little message me on his thing. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm really passionate about the cannabis space. I have friends that are in there. Um, I'm interested. And so- I think Eric knew, you know, he's been in the space that he is. He knew the future, which is the legalization, right? So he knew he had to start, start two, three years earlier, getting that, you know, base work of, okay, I got to educate somebody to understand the rules, to understand where the rules are going so that they can do all this work. So he, he saw my drive. And so he brought me in. And when I came in, I had, you know, way longer hair than I do now. I was like down to my belly in a suit, <laughs> you know, just try, you know, and you know, you I, clean up I, nice though. Yeah. I, try, I, I, I do a little bit now, you know, nice, uh, you know um, it's about what's up here. That's yeah, what it's about. Yeah, he, and you, know, he, he and saw you my make passion. it easy for us to understand, mm-hmm. but yeah, he yeah, saw, so he saw your passion and was like, I got to bring this kid in. Mm-hmm. And then so starts a lot of the hard work, I'm guessing. Well, he, he, he actually, he's pretty funny. So when I, I was doing the interview and I was like, okay, I think, I think we want to want you for the job. We're good. Um, but we're gonna have to drug test you. And in my mind, I'm like, the fuck, like I'm about to like do this for like cannabis. And like, you're, he's like, but you got to fail. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> perfect. Cause I definitely will. Um, he's so, a great guy. That's actually how I met you. No. Yeah, for sure. Yep. I mean, and that's the thing, like his, his roots were so deep because he got, I mean, 
I bet any person you brought onto your show and you ask him if you know who Eric Shevin is, they're like, oh yeah, he got me out of this thing 10 years ago. Um, so he's, he's definitely an OG in the game. And like my first year or two, um, I didn't even have an office. I had a desk inside his room and I would just sit there and just listen to him. Wow. You know, I mean, I, I was doing my crucial. own thing, reading, re reading regulations, trying to understand that, but just hearing him speak and hearing him, you know, converse with clients and, you know, take on issues and hear what, really hear what the, the client is trying to say of what's wrong here and how to fix that issue and, and get to the bottom of it. And just learning that skill set was just huge for me. It, I mean, it gave me such a leg up. Um, and then, you know, just growing up with the people that I did, just being in the space that I was like, these were my people. Um, and so it was, it wasn't at first easy for me to s converse with them. Um, you know, so I, as part of like my intro into the space and I knew Teddy and I was trying to learn all these things. So I brought Teddy on as a client, you know, I obviously want to bring in more clients and get you yep. know, more experience. And so we went to the Emerald cup 2016. Um, and it was like pouring rain. Um, I was with Teddy and Seth from straight organics and they were just, just walking around. They didn't have a booth at the time. You know, they're just walking we there, around. We were there. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, at the, I think at that time it might've still been like, you had to been from that County. To like actually have yeah, a booth. Yeah, it was like some invite only shit. Yeah, yeah. So, rack so but there. like they would, they would, they would, they would run around though, and still like meet people and stuff. And you know, my sociological brain in me, I, I just thought it was so funny because I'd be rolling in this group with Teddy, and it was like me and a couple of the other people who were like helping the grows and all that stuff. And he'd run into somebody, some other big wig, you know, like Lance from Blackleaf or Alex from Critical or whoever, and they'd start talking, and then the group would kind of spread out around them. And cause like, you were like, I felt like I was like his henchman, you know, like we'd get a circle around them while they were like the main people were talking. And then all like the side people would be like talking on the outskirts. Um, and then just from that, Teddy would like bring me in and be like, Oh, Chris, this is my lawyer right here. You know? Um, cause everyone was talking like, Oh, what are you doing for the legal space? How are you getting legal? And he'd be like, Oh, my lawyer's right here. So, you know, Teddy gave me, Teddy opened the door for me, um, real quick, uh, which, which I, and that's helped me learn a lot more about, uh, the psychological mindset of the growers who like created this industry. Um, cause th that day when I got there, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go try and meet some people. So I went, I went to a couple of booths and back then, like when you went to a booth, it was the owners were there, right? Like they were the ones like handling the cash, making the sales. I mean, there might be a couple of dudes that like help with the grows, but it, the owners were there, you know, like that's where those guys were. And I'd go up to them, you know, fresh out of law school, just trying to like bring clients in. I'm like, Oh, you know, where are you guys growing at? Not knowing like, that's literally that, the worst know, question so like, you could ask. Like what? Like uh, you know, we we grow up in this area. I'm like, oh, okay. Like are you guys got your cooperative. Like I'm trying to ask legal questions to see where are you to see if I could help you with that. Like, right? This like I'm, a fed I think for I, sure. Yeah, I think I'm trying to help, and they're like, what the fuck. Yeah, we got all the paperwork, and like I could just sense they're like, get the fuck out of here, dude. Like we don't want to talk to you. Um, so I was like, okay, well that didn't work. Um, so I went back to Teddy, and then just I realized just following him, getting the cosign from somebody who's trusted in the industry is how I was able to like get my name. That's how I met Drew from Green Dog, Seth from Straight Organics, Carter uh, from CAD. And that was kind of my original core group at just meeting those groups. And then slowly but surely, like, you know, those conversations keep happening with Teddy, with Carter, you know, asking, oh, how are you doing this? Like, how, like oh, you have this corporate paperwork. How'd you get that? And my name just kept getting kind of thrown into the pot. And um, that's, you know, that's how I kind of got my, my foot into the door. So it was a mixture between Teddy you know, opening the door into the culture for me and letting me be a part of the industry and get quick access. Cause otherwise, like I'm not having conversations with Ivan from jungle boys or Wes from heavy hitters or Lance from Blackleaf. Like I'm just a, you know, just a kid in a suit trying to like talk to these people. Like they gave me that, 
uh, the cosign that like opened that door and gave me the the credence to like have those conversations. And then through Eric, he gave me the practical skills because he has such a deep well. Um, I was able to learn so much so fast because I was dealing with so many bigger issues than just Teddy's or green dogs or yours. Like if there, if it was just you guys as my clients, right. I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of pigeonholed into the issues you guys are dealing with. But before I even got to your issues, I'm dealing with major like licensing issues for like jungle boys and all these other people. Um, I'm just getting tons of experience because of the deep well, because all these people who were in the traditional market are like, okay, we want to get legal. Well, the only lawyer we know is Eric and you know, that dude's legit. So we're going to give him a call. And so it was an easy transition for us at Chevin's to go from criminal law to this corporate business stuff. And I kind of headed that department um, doing a lot of licensing deals for about two years. Um, and then at, at a certain point, I just kind of had my long list of clients. I mean, I was just, I just had a lot of people that in the space, I was just going to cannabis events, meeting people on my Instagram and, uh, around 2019, October, I was like, I think I could do this on my own. So, um, I brought a buddy for me from law school who worked in like big law, more traditional, um, worked at, uh, doing like construction litigation. And, uh, you know, the way I looked at the future of cannabis was obviously licensing was a big piece, but to me that that's almost one of the easier parts. It's contracts, it's protecting IP and eventually litigation because like any industry, like litigation is just, you know, inevitable. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. And so you need, you need at least a little bit of that skill set. Um, now we don't do lawsuits. We don't go into court and like do that. Um, but we, we can do pre litigation. So sending demand letters, you know, threatening people or just trying to ask people to like follow through with your contract terms like that. So he kind of brought that piece for me and helped educate me their way. Um, and then, yeah, we just kind of been just doing our thing. And I, I think when I started my company, I wanted to change like the ethos of a lawyer, because what I realized is I, I'm a tool in, in your tool belt, in my client's tool belt, right? And when you look at general corporate work, you know, and you're working for maybe Coca-Cola or Disney or all these big business, there's, there's a culture that you kind of got to follow and lawyers are expected to be a certain way. And what I loved about this industry is that I was not only expected to be that type of lawyer, it was almost like, uh, uh, you know, it, it harmed me if I was that person, right? If I went out to a cannabis event in a suit, right? Like you guys see people walking around in a suit. I don't care who you are, but you're just like, all right, Chad, like, I, I don't trust you. You know, like, I, I don't know if I want to. Thank God talk your name wasn't Chad, man. I know. <laughs> it been bad. I might've changed it if it that'd was. Been shit, that'd, huh? been, that'd have been bad. The Chad I got the same defamation or something. I'm a C name too. I thought the same thing, bro. I was like, man, I was close. You know, could have been Chad. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. Um, so, so I think that, that, that helped me just kind of, you know, having tattoos, long hair, beard, and then growing up with a lot of these people, like these were my people. So it was easier for me to talk to them. And like, I mean, you know, Lance, like I, the way I explain things, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to spit out complicated legal jargon to you. Like I try to use metaphors that like are relatable and th ways to understand things a little better because the whole goal is to, to help you guys run your business and do the legal work in a way for yourself because the more negotiation that you do that you handle the less work i have to do the more that you understand what's in the contract the more you know how to respond to me about how you want that contract to lay out what terms you want in there how, how it's all so so I, I try to create my business as almost like a board of director position like i want to sit down with you i want to talk about where you want to go um you know what are your goals with this like are you trying to sell out are you trying to be long term are you trying to you know, just do a small craft grower trying to do bigger and all these things, the more communication I have, the more I understand how I need to negotiate for you or the things I need to point on and say, Hey, 
you know, they're asking for an exclusive deal right here. You know what that means, right? Like that means you can't even, you know, license this to somebody else in another state. You can't even like, you know, change your mark a little bit. You can't just like form a new, you know, so it's, it's part of what I do is, is, you know, in a way like glorified handholding, just trying to help educate people and make you guys a better business. Um, and I can only do that if, you know, you, know, you, you let me and you, and you give me a call. And, you know, I think we were talking earlier about how, you know, lawyers can be so expensive and you spend five, 10 grand for a deal not to go through. Um, you know, there, there's still positives to that, right? Because yeah. you can, you can spend 10 grand on a lawyer and go through negotiations on a deal for months and then not go through. But like the reality is, is that deal goes through, like it could be real bad for you, right? Like they could, they could try and screw you over. They can take your company. They can call, use capital calls. I mean, all the stuff we're probably about to get into. Um, and so I think, I think a lot of this industry and what's different than other areas of, of legal work is that this industry is a lot of ways based on trust. Mm -hmm. So my work isn't as important right now because everyone has trust within each other and you guys almost regulate yourselves, right? If somebody, if some big company fucks over somebody that's on Instagram, everybody knows about it. Everyone's hating on that person and no one's going to want to do business with them. It's, it's a very tight knit community in that way. And so in a lot of ways, I don't need to come in with an iron fist and demand everything, right? Like I, I, my goal is just to make sure that your deals happen, that you guys put it together and that everything that you want and they want are, are working together. Cause ultimately the contract should just be sitting in a drawer. No one talks about it. Everyone's just making money. Everything's all good. It's just when things don't go good, you know, like, you know, examples, you know, someone sleeps with the other person's wife and now, you know, now there's beef and now you got to break apart. Okay. Well, how do we do that? And the contract hopefully identifies that and explains it and, you know, everyone gets Have out. Have you had, had to deal with that? Oh, yeah. I, I was about to say That's that. Why I brought it up. Yeah, that was a reason we brought that That's up. One issue. Yeah. Well, and let me, let me get the way I see this is Chevin is Yoda and you're mm. Luke Skywalker. <laughs> I'm going to be honest because you're fighting the dark side for us. Okay. We're honestly, and you were able to sit next to Yoda and learn this stuff mm -hmm. practical. And now you represent us so well, meaning. So many times Pat Gods and myself have left attorney's offices and felt deflated, very deflated, very much like, how are we ever going to get up? How are we ever going to figure this out? Even after we just paid a couple grand, right? How are, like this has seemed such like a big undertaking. They made it seem so complicated mm -hmm. and we're the small guy mm -hmm. with you. It I leave. And this isn't just me and my complex, I, the way you explain things and the way it's in your hands to make the right deal and they're coming to us. And, and it's just such, you speak the cultivator and the hash maker in the new industry's language. And that's how I, that's how I look at it. You were able to interpret from Yoda and now you're able to speak the language of what, what we're dealing with right now. And the points you bring up are so practical and such like, dude, one of the things, I mean, we can get into is, a lot of the guys want to give you a percentage of gross or a percentage of net. They want to come up with fancy terms. Let's do a licensing deal and we'll give you a percentage of this. Well, now you have to, if you're not getting the right money or you think you're perceived not getting the right money, you have to do an audit of the company. Mm -hmm. How many audits before that company breaks up, right? Where you're auditing your partners and, and one or two of those and probably you're, mm -hmm. there's some stress now between the partners. I mean, if you're just doing one of those, I mean, there's stress, right? Because that means now... I can't even trust your own accounting methods for a company that has very strict. I mean, if you're a licensed entity, I mean, you're tracking and tracing everything. You got taxes on a federal state city level. And if now you're manipulating the books to where 
you know, I'm not getting paid right and I got to go hire somebody to go do it. I mean, it's an expensive process and it's time consuming to like go through that and find all that. Um, stressful so that, mentally. Oh, oh, too. Stressful. And, and, you know, then you're always thinking in your head like, oh, is this person just backdooring things? Is he stops you, business? Is he ta- yeah. It, it doesn't make it good for the business. So if you're down the audit path, it's already, um, it's too already late. not good. Um, but to, to your point, you know, as part of a licensing deal, and something that you need to think about is like, okay, how are you going to get paid? And what's the practicality of that? If it's a net deal, meaning that, you know, let's just say you get 30% of the net, there's a list of expenses that sometimes are identified in the contract, sometimes not. It Sometimes it just, it's kind of general and it will say, um, you know, all any and all expenses have to be paid and then we'll split whatever's left, right? And so mm-hmm. every business can be different, right? There's, you know, there's soil, nutrients, lights, electricity, lease agreements, but then there's can also be like inflated salaries and, you know, maybe a weird marketing budget where some dude gets paid way too much to post a picture on Instagram and all that stuff comes out. And then you're just left with like a penny and then you split 30% of a penny and you're like, where the hell did all this go? Um, and especially when you're a small company doing a real audit, like it's just not really feasible. I mean, like you're trying to grow. You're, you don't want to spend time like, oh shit, like I got to go figure out if this guy owes me an extra five grand. Like that's just too much. And so going for more of a gross deal where it's just a flat number or, or per package, it's just going to be a lot easier. Cause then, you know, like, okay, you sold 15 of them. I get X amount of dollars. Right. I'm um, just a way. lot less math. Can, um, can you give a good example of that? Um, like, like the way to do per package for people to know that, like, oh, you to, know, yeah, yeah. To, the solution to structure, to that. To structure a licensing deal properly to yeah. where you get paid per eighth mm-hmm. or per pound, whatever, right? Well, so, so for the starting point with an IP licensing deal, this so there's two ways really to get in this the legal space. And one of them is the IP licensing deal. And so the first way to do that is you got to form a business, an LLC, corporation, right? If you sign things with your name, that means somebody who, if you violate that contract or if you put, let's say, a lease under your, you know, under your name and somebody slips and falls in there, they're going after your personal assets. So the whole point of the LLC or corporation is to shield your, your own personal assets from liability. So you want to start off by by forming that. Um, then you need to figure out what what is it that your what's your intellectual property, right? Like Blackleaf, you have that the B, and you have you know various other IP, and you want to get that trademarked. Mm-hmm. You want to put that under the company. So now that company holds assets, and ideally you get it for cannabis, so you could prevent other people from using it for cannabis because the trademark is only good for the specific good that you're using it for. Now on a federal level, you you know you can't get cannabis trademark because it's still a schedule one drug, but you can get on a state level, on a federal level, you can get clothing, you can do some other things to try and prevent other people from using it. But basically before you even start entering into contracts, you need to get your own house in order. Because if you don't have trademarks, if you're just kind of out there operating, you don't really have anything. And as, as weird as it seems that a piece of paper and a registration with the state is value, like it is, like that is, is the value. When Coca-Cola, when Philip Morris, when those guys come in, that's what they want. They want those assets. They want those legitimized assets that show that you own this mark, that you're it's unique to you, that you can shut other people down from using it. Um, so you got to get your own house in order before you kind of work with other people because whether it's bringing on an investor or a licensing deal, if that stuff isn't there, if that stuff doesn't, you know, if you don't have a company made, if you don't have your operating agreement set up, like there's no point even having this conversation with you because- you know, now we're all just wasting our time. So you got to, you got to get that piece set up. Um, 
So basically in layman's terms, make sure that your, your trademark, your name, make sure that your logo is trademarks, get that under your LLC. That's your, that's your intellectual property. And that's what we've had to do. So just so you people are know, like I've been on that. We've been on that. We've been on that for years and years, but you, you got to get, if this is your trademark, meaning your, your logo and your name, you need to trademark those in every single I mean, there's multiple different levels too. Mm-hmm. You want to do apparel, you want to do tobacco products, which is like jars and stuff. Then mm-hmm. you want to get into the cannabis. cannabis. I mean, there's so many different levels. You could do live plants now on the there state level. Um, and, and that's just an ongoing piece of your business. So like, let's just say you got a, a mark in California for Blackleaf. Um, it doesn't stop somebody from another state using it because you have only a mark and protected in on the state level. And that's why we go to the federal level and get it for clothing because clothing is just such an integral part about developing your brand, right? It's, it's branding, right? Like you got her, your highness. Now that's, that's a brand that's, that's advertisement for other people. So if you have that on a federal level, you as a cannabis company are basically asked out of a whole section of marketing because now you can't make clothing. Um, you might've stolen somebody's you know idea and for cannabis and can make a similar cannabis brand, but you can't make clothing. Um, without violating, you know, some trademark laws. So, um, you know, getting your own house in order is, is first before you go out. But to your point of of the licensing, an example of that, um, you kind of just back into the numbers. I mean, everybody is different. Um, every brand is has a little bit more leverage than others, right? Um, who you're negotiating with, you might have more leverage, right? If they have like, they've had like three or four failed grows in a row and you're their last hope, you know, you have a little bit more higher leverage and it's important to understand the variables around every contract situation, because that dictates whether you get 21% or 20%. And it might seem like it's a percent, but those add up over time, right? Um, so every everything matters. And the way that I would go about it is, is, let's just say, we just figure it's 30% net is what we were looking for. So you can kind of roughly estimate what those numbers look like by using a PNL. Some people use like a CFO to kind of like draft up these accounting documents and you can kind of back into the numbers of like, okay, if it's 30% of net, we assume X amount on the expenses, I should be getting $6 and 50 cents per package. And, you know, then you can go back to, then you can go to the other side and say, Hey, based on these numbers, it's typically about six fifty per package. I'll lower it at $6 per package. Um, just in case there's, you know, wiggle room as things go up or down in price. Um, you know, that's one way to do it. Yeah. The gross method is, is obviously another one. You would just, okay, if it's 650, you figure out what the sales price are and you just back into that number again and say, okay, it's 2% of the gross so that I can get that number. Um, but, but even those two, those two items of getting paid on a per package level and a gross level can come out to different end results. Cause on a gross level, if prices go down, your, your payment goes down, right? Um, cause now they're getting less per package per, per pound. And now you're making less. If you have a straight strict dollar amount per package, whether it goes up or down, you're there, you know, you, you get your number, but that's the problem for you is if it goes up, you're stuck at that number. Right. Um, so it's a balancing tech and, and there's different ways we can go about that. There's what you could do. What's called like a waterfall schedule, which is where, you know, if you sell zero to hundred thousand SKUs, it's 3% per unit, 101,000 to 250, it's 4%. And so you're kind of, you're, you're kind of building in more money for yourself as the business grows. Um, I I like what you're saying, though, because this is key for cultivators, right? And hash makers is what happens when they do product and it's not able to hit the market. That's why the the per unit works so well, because if you have a crop that has to be wholesaled off, you have just a flat fee. 
maybe that split, something that it's, hey, it's a percentage of whatever we could get for the crop. It's it's a backup, right? Meaning it's you're not holding the the investors, you know, hand to the fire and you're also giving leeway. So you're saying for every 128 units sold, which is a unit or a pound, I want three to six dollars per eighth. It's it's everything that crosses that legal boundary you get paid on. I mean, that is so key, bro. That is, and you know, it's also just going, playing it out more because like that brings up other issues is like, okay, you're getting paid. What are you getting paid for? You're getting paid to license your brand. Well, what if that product isn't of quality where you don't want to put your brand on it? Okay. So now you have to come up with a a situation or a line item on your contract that says, okay, if it's not up to this quality, which is like, how do you define that? Is it a THC percentage? Is it terpenes? Is it because based on my sole discretion, right? So that's a conversation point. Um, okay. If it does get sold out to somebody, somebody else, you sh- do, you, do you get a percentage of that? Because now you've lost revenue because now you don't have product in the market. You've, you're missing out on sales. You've, you're now a detriment because they failed at their growing. Um, or if you have your cultivars in there, they're using your cultivars to sell to other people. So how do you deal with that? And so all this is to say that the answer to everything is it, it depends, right? There's variables that you have to account for. And the only way that a lawyer, whether it's me or somebody else, or even your own management team, the only way that you're going to know how to plan for the future is by communicating. And I find that it, at least in initially, it was very hard for people of this industry to communicate because of the industry that they're in, right? You tell the wrong person where you're growing, your shit's gone, right? You, you know, you sell to the wrong person and they snitch on you, you know, now you're in jail. You tell so, them, Hey, I still need to get my trademark. And then they trademark it before and you. They, and they steal. Yeah. Another partner. All which, kinds which, of crazy shit. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, um, you know, this, this industry has just been guarded for so long, you know, and it's my job to try and like pull away those guards and be like, okay, I'm the one person that you can communicate to because, you know, I'm held to an attorney client privilege. I can't speak about this. And if I do, you can go to the bar and remove my license and I can never practice law again. So there's, you know, that's more of a plug to why you should buy, you know, hire a lawyer as opposed to a consultant, um, because a consultant has no protection uh, from the law. Yeah. Like if you also get protection of whatever you talk to your attorney is can't be used against you. Correct. Uh, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, there are certain, certain privileges and that, and there are certain times where, um, like it depends who my client is. Like, is my client you as an individual or is it the company? And if it's the company, is it you and other partners in that company? Because if you come to me and tell me as an individual, like, oh, I've been pocketing money and selling pounds at the back end, I can tell the other partners and say, hey, this guy's stealing from you. Um, I don't have to. That's not required. But if within it's an California, individual one-on-one basis. Then it's just, you're my client. I'm looking out for you at all times. Um, so, and, and that's, you know, where it kind of gets difficult for me is because I have so many people in this industry that I represent probably over half my deals are with my own clients because they're all working together. There's so much collaborative efforts and it's a small, fairly small industry. And so that's where it can kind of get a little weird too, is that, you know, I can't advocate for you at that point. I can't tell you like, Hey man, you should get a couple more percentage points on that. I can only just listen to what you and, you know, your highness want to do on a deal. And then I just put it down on paper. I can't be like, Hey man, like, you know, they're kind of fucking you on this or, you know, you're not getting enough on that. I'm just kind of stuck in that. So that's kind of another thing you have to think about is as you get a lawyer, do you need someone to advocate for on your, on your behalf? And if you do, like who is on the other side? Because if it's someone they also represent, you know, you have to sign waivers and stuff. Um, but I, I think with a lawyer, when you're shopping around for a lawyer, don't just go to the first person you see. I mean, I, I see a lot of people just like go somewhere and they're like, I don't want to go to any more meetings. Sure. Whatever pay. 
Um, but a lawyer can is a tool in your tool belt. And if you use them correctly, they can they can help you in a lot of ways. Um, and so you got to be comfortable with communicating with them, feeling like you can give them a call at any time, um, feeling like you can maybe tell them some things that maybe make you feel uncomfortable um, or tell them that you had, you know, like we had we had a client uh, we were doing a license for. And as part of licensing, uh, you have to disclose if you've ever been arrested and if you have any ever have like violent crimes or white collar crimes, you can't be an owner. And so obviously when we put this group together, that's all coming together to do a license. We're like, OK, have any of you been arrested? anything is some cannabis stuff here and there. Um, nothing big and they're all, we're all good. So they, we do the whole license, the whole state application, we send it in and it gets rejected. We're like, what the hell? And we find out that one of the guys had like an armed bank robbery from like 20 years ago. We're like, dude, how did you just forget that? And he's like, I don't know, man. I just, I, I forgot about up. it. That's yeah. It's saying, like, uh, it doesn't work that answer. way. Yeah. You know, so Hoping you, that shit wouldn't so pop if there's up, ever man. anyone you got to like talk to and Can't like go communicate banks, with, man. it's lawyers. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and, and communication is key. Uh, my, my stepfather, who's like a real good businessman always says this at, uh, you know, you don't know about the problems arise until you talk about them. So you got to talk them through now. And one of the thing, the big things that where you come into play is a lot of the contracts that, you know, speaking loosely about our dealings is how do we unravel this is most of a contract. How do we, once we get in bed with each other, if this doesn't work out, then what happens? And this is what most people don't want to talk about. What happens when we decide not to be partners anymore? How do you or I exit this? Or how do we both exit this? And this needs to be thought out when you're getting into business. Not once we've already invested all our money and we're real deep in this. And then we find out we had very different plans for how this was going to end. And what I find is businessmen use a tactic like, wow, this contract's really thick. This is a lot of pages, Mr. Hickok. You know, this is a lot to read. And they use this tactic of, this is a big contract. Can we make this thinner? Can we dumb this down? How thin can we get this? All the big businessmen in my life, including you and including, you know, it's always a contract is the contract. If it's 10 pages, it's 10 pages. If it's 50, it's 50. You know, when you go to Disney and you want to work with them, you don't get to dictate how many pages a contract is. It's, it is what it is. Could you touch on that at all? Like, I mean, tactics in business and like things to watch out for. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's obviously multiple ways to go after an issue. I mean, I, I like to always start off with an LOI, a letter of intent, and that's essentially the small contract, the two, three pager that says, you'll pay me this, I'll pay you this. You know, I'll give you this, you give me this, you'll do these things, I'll do these things, and just kind of high-level terms, um, just to kind of, so that people can go and start working with some basic understanding of what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, especially in cannabis, things move very quickly, right? You know, so you got to be able to move move quickly. And so that's what the LOI helps with. But the, but the bigger contract, I mean, like you said, the whole point of it is to have the difficult conversations of, okay, well, what happens if this doesn't work out? And that's really what most of the contract is, is, is there. And, you know, granted probably the last five or six pages is like boilerplate terms, like severability and force majeure and, you know, countersigns and all those terms are in there is because at one point, some, some point in history, somebody did a contract without that. 
sued and lost. And now it's just like a staple of a contract. So there's, there's definitely a good portion of it. That's just like standardized stuff. Um, but again, like it, it's part of my job is making sure that people have had that conversation. Cause what I've happened all the time is people call me and say, Oh, we're going to work on this deal. They're going to give me 20%. And we're going to, I'm going to give them some cultivars and we're going to, you know, we're going to run it. And I'm like, okay, well, how, one, how are you going to get it to them? Like, do you, are they, they're comfortable with accepting it, you know, maybe outside of the nursery system Two, are they willing to say that those are yours? Uh, are they allowed to make seeds? Are they, you know, and you start having, you start breaking down that deal and it's a lot more than maybe how it was back in the day where it's like, maybe people go halves on a building and you say, okay, we split everything halves and it's kind of easy. Now it's a little more than that because now there's IP ownership involved. There's cultivar ownership involved and that kind of diversity can really change a whole company. And so it's kind of my job to hear that deal and then say, well, what about this? Like, well, what happens if, um, you know, what happens if they're not growing properly and not up to your standards, like, and you can't make any money and you know, you're an exclusive deal and giving them a licensing. Well, what happens then? Are you then allowed to go elsewhere? So it's having those difficult conversations. And I think that part is, obviously hard for it for a lot of people just to have difficult because you only want to think about the positives right you you only want to assume that this is gonna crush it we're all gonna make a million dollars we're all gonna be rich and it's all good but the whole point is like well what if right and you get that you have those conversations you put it out on paper and hopefully it never happens um but nine times out of ten something does happen i mean i get people all the time oh this is my brother like i don't i don't need something i'm like I could tell you others. I could tell you multiple stories about brothers like feuding and kicking each other out of the property, right? Um, Apparently, having sex with each other's wives. Yeah, yeah, really it happens. You know, how about like, how to run cultivators yeah. out, right? You cultivars out, so you bring in a bunch of genetics, and legally, you can't just take those out now. No. So how do you? If we end the licensing deal. Now what? You have yeah. all my strains and you have all my branding. Maybe you have you the packaging. New ones too, have, right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. You we create new ones because you did see. So what do we do then? What happens? And it's like, that's when someone like you comes in and we put a proper contract together that mm -hmm. says, well, you have six to eight months to run out these cultivars. Mm -hmm. And in that process, we we run through the X amount of packaging and we get that mm -hmm. we basically run out this system mm -hmm. and we restart and those tough conversations is what most shady businessmen want to avoid. Mm -hmm. And I found that is a huge topic. Most guys that have ulterior motives, when you start to ask these questions, you get all the acting funny coming out. Yeah, yeah. You get all kinds of this whole show starts to happen in mm -hmm. front of you that you're like, oh, wow, this is OK. I had a hint that this is mm -hmm. I've seen that in person with you. We've seen that multiple times mm -hmm. just to be dead honest. And uh having a proper contract has saved brands. I mean, you know, my mom always says you got to trust your gut, you know, and I think you can know fairly quickly sometimes if a person is going to do right by you or just fuck around and like steal money, like you can kind of get vibes on, on people like that. And like that, when you start having those questions and, you know, and they're like getting a little weird about it, um, take that as a red flag and find someone else because a partnership, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a marriage, right? A, a marriage is a contract. It's a, it's a document you sign and you register with the government, right? Uh, a business, a joint venture, uh, that's a marriage. You know, you're marrying these partners. And if you don't know, you know, if they get their 30% and you didn't write and explain how they have to earn that or the work that they have to do, they can say, fuck off. I'm, I'm going to go do something else. And now they got 30%. And if you don't have some way to unravel that or, you know, pull back some percentages, I mean, you could just be giving away, you know, the farm. So, um, you definitely got to do the due diligence. You got to have those difficult conversations and you got to date these people, um, which is, which is mm. tough to do. Right. Cause like you want to move things fast, 
Um, and that's what's good about an LOI is like you can do like test runs, right? You could say, hey, we'll, we'll do one run. We'll, we'll make a deal for one run. We'll let you run one thing. Let's see how this goes, plays it out. Um, because this, as fast as everything moves, it's, it's, it's a long game. We're playing a very long game right now. Right now, there's no really timeline for it to be federally legalized. So it's like you got to make the right moves and the right decisions for your business because you get in something too quick and you give up your business. Well, now you're out the game or you got to start a new game. You know, um, you get with bad partners and they destroy your name in the industry. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder to climb out of that. So um, everything, everything matters. And the, just know that life is long and like you don't need to move at warp speed. Like make do your due diligence, make sure things are going to work out for you. Um, because if not, it's going to cost you way more money to try and get out of it than just spending the money early on and setting something up that's right for you. Might cost you everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. All those 20 years you guys spent, you know, all your genetics. From the cops, felonies, all the genetics, your brand, your name. brand, everything could just be gone. Um, I'm dead being, <laughs> no, I'm being, same with the hash maker. It could be all, it could be the same thing. It's, it's, uh, one of the, you know, I, it's so it's crazy. Cause I just go crazy on thinking all these, you know, all the bad things that could happen, yeah. but having you in a corner, bro, is like having Mike Tyson. I mean, and people always ask this. So, so I'm a hustler or I'm a rapper. Right. And I want to, I want my own brand mm -hmm. and I want to go to a distro and be like, Hey man, I want my, I want to launch my own brand. This is someone, a lot of people, you can be anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I, people like what I curate. Mm -hmm. I'm a tastemaker. Mm -hmm. I want to go to a distro and I want to create my own brand. Mm -hmm. They could come to you and get that done. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's two ways to get licensed. It's the IP licensing deal where essentially they say, Hey, here's my brand. I'll lease it to you and you pay me a percentage of the profits. Now, if you just came up with a brand out of nowhere, uh, you don't have a lot of leverage. Um, this industry, you know, is tough in more ways than one. It, it's, it's easy to, to take your sticker and slap it on a product. There's a lot of product out there, but then how do you sell it? And how do you sell it in a reasonable time to where the product that gets to the consumer is good? right? Like you buy product out in the open market. There's a good chance that product's already old. That's why it's in the open market. You put it in your packaging, which takes time. You go get it tested, which takes time. You then have to try and find ways to sell it to retail because, you know, retailers typically buy things in, in, in certain intervals. So you can't always just show up and be like, Hey, you want my weed? And if you're a brand you don't know, do they want to take on your liability, take on that product and then just have it sit on the shelves um, which would obviously make them look bad if people buy it and it's all dry and not good. Um, so starting off as a new brand is tough. Like you got to spend a good amount of money on marketing um, or unless you have like connections to get into the stores because um, otherwise it, the it's pretty tough. The but that, streets first. Yeah. Hey, you know, so hey. I, I have people, I, I have people's <laughs> marketing techniques I mean, the to, they just want to get into the stores just because it's going to give them more clout on the streets. Yeah. To say I'm in, you know, X store, like, you know, now my packaging is legit. You can watch the major brands in the industry, how they move. And you can almost see a blueprint mm -hmm. uh, just to be honest, you know, for some of the, that this, the biggest ones that are popping in the streets are popping in on both markets. Mm -hmm. If you're not popping in the streets, it's hard to say, you know, y y you are making money, but it's only because certain black market brands are still kept out. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, for sure. I mean, I see I'm, I'm torn on this because I so many like legacy brands, I, I look at them as like hype brands, right? Like they, there's a certain clientele that they're reaching. And if you look at like the projected growth of this industry, those hype people like myself, you who smoke that type of weed, we've already been counted in the, in the industry. So the growth, 
the, the massive growth that's coming is not us. It's, it's moms, it's athletes, it's old people. It's all these different, you know, sections. And if you look at products, you know, just general, general products, like they're geared towards certain groups of people. Like they're not all hype people, right? Like there's people that go after old people. And so I think that there's still a lot of room for people to make a good product for someone outside of, I guess, our circle, um, because it's, it's cramped. I mean, you know, every brand I can think of is a hype brand essentially. That's cause it's fun, but what's a good, <laughs> what's a good like demographic niche that you would say is, is, oh. uh, is a good one. Well, so, so I work with this group called PGP. So this is a separate group I, I work with. And the way we came about was I was just talking to this guy who comes from, he created like 1-800-DENTIST and 1-800-COLLECT, which has been like a top 1,000 brand. So he's a brand creator. I met this other guy who does packaging for like Disney and Coca-Cola. And so they, like three, four years ago, they wanted to know about the industry and like what's what's missing from the, what, what are the holes in the industry, right? Like uh, it's obviously not growers, like we got growers in there, but like what's missing. And and the way that we came to was kind of like a marketing, uh, like general business ideas, like how, how businesses are typically ran with like an eye towards marketing. It's not just like, let me just slap a sticker on it and hope it works. Like let's do some test subjects. Let's, let's, let's send a bunch of different ideas out and let's have, let's have groups of people like, look at this, figure out which ones they like. Um, and through that, they've created other brands where they just find groups of people who are, you know, 45 to 65 in a certain demographic and give them different options and try and figure, like use science to figure out what is it in these people's minds that they like, what colors do that attract to them, what design profiles attract to them and just gear a product directly towards them. Um, so, you know, that's not really an answer to your question, but it is, but it is, you know, it's, you got to go at it with some directionality and science and not just say, okay, we want to go through athletes. Just take like, a blind shot. Yeah. You got to So, so explain, break it down how they test that. Mm -hmm. They, what they put five different products out to five different people or. So you know, two, maybe, two ways might, maybe more yeah, yeah. people, more products, but. So, so there's two ways. Uh, I'll give, I'll give two examples. One, like what they do is you know, they sit back and figure out, okay, who's our demographic? Who are we trying to go? Let's, let's develop a brand around that. And there's companies that have these people that they pay money to, to like do tests and surveys and type of stuff. And so then you would just go on and create a survey and say, how much money would you pay for a product like this? Does THC matter more to you or does CBD matter? Do you know the difference? And you're just collecting data to understand what your demographic is. And you're just asking people who are 35 to 45, all these questions. And then you refine it and you say, come back and say, okay, out of these products, which ones do you like more? And so it's a very, I mean, I'm, it's not my area of expertise. I mean, I could definitely bring that's, some people on for you so guys much game. for another one. <laughs> that's I so got, much game for any for brand, for, one, for any know? brand, not yeah. even in cannabis. No, for sure. But yeah. specifically cannabis, like, damn, that's so much, that's a ton of game right no, there. No, and, and I think, uh, I think people get married to their brand is like, this is my brand. This is it. Nah, but like, it's up so to the he, people. Here, here's an example mm. of a of a fairly famous vape company that, you know, they were going to dispensaries and selling just tons of vapes. And they're like, we want you to buy more. And the retailers were like, our, our, our customers want diversity. They don't just want to come in and see just your brand. They want to at least have the illusion of choice that like can look and figure out which one that they want. And so this group was like, okay, like, let me go back to the lab. They went back to the lab, just created eight different product lines, same, same manufacturing profile, terpenes, same everything. Um, same flavors, just different packaging geared towards athletes, geared towards old people, packaging towards, um, you know, mom, soccer moms. And then they went back to the retailer and the retailer is obviously stoked about it because 
now they have a multitude of products and they only have to deal with one distributor, right? Like that's what less work for them. Um, so that was kind of the alternative one is just, you don't have to be married to your brand. Like what I try and tell people is if you want to make a lot of money in this space, I mean, once it becomes federally legal, the small grower is going to have a very difficult time competing. I mean, there are craft wineries some craft beers. It's few and far between like, any industry, you, you fucking pick one, airlines, beauty products, it's all owned by three, four companies, right? And cannabis eventually will be no different. And when there's these consolidation events, what these people are going to look for, what these Philip Morris's, what the, you know, these big companies of the world are going to look for are products that meet their needs or meet their client needs, or maybe they just don't even want to compete with you. But the idea is that they're going to want your IP and they're either going to want it as part of their portfolio or they're going to want it out of the market so they don't have to compete with it. And so you know, if you get stuck on one brand and develop one brand, you only have one shot at hitting that jackpot. If you Ooh, come up with one for wow. old people and a hundred thousand know, hours worth of game right there. There you go. You know, it why is, not though. why not try it? Why Hit not? multiple areas, throw multiple darts yeah. at the board. If you have the good product, if you have great it, flour, if you have great comes manufactured down to products, try it. Having the entity, the trademark, mm -hmm. and all the other intellectual property under that umbrella that you set up mm -hmm. so that when you're, you know discussing or if you sell off equity mm -hmm. or if you know you do go for a roll-up you know exit mm -hmm. you you get paid ready because well, yeah, if not and, you're not getting paid and, and that's that's the thing too is if your goal is to be rolled up or to be bought or acquired every step you move you move towards to get to that point has to be with that on your mind which means like these companies aren't going to buy your your five-year-old company that's never filed taxes Right. Like, cause that's just a massive liability. Right. So you got to do your taxes. You got to do your accounting. Um, you got to, you got to pay your employees because all those things can create liabilities. And when a company like a Philip Morris comes in, they're not just going to sign some one page paper and be like, Oh, thanks. I'll take all this. They're going to make sure that you own those marks. They're going to make sure that you have no liabilities, that there's no one out there ready to sue you for some violation you created. Um, so you got to have all that stuff work in order. And it, it's tough cause it's not, it's not a money making expense, right? Like when you, when you're growing and you buy better soil or better nutrients, you could see the value in your, your grow. What you're doing here, like it's hard to see that value. Cause it's just like, fuck, I'm paying this lawyer to just sit there and fucking sit on his computer and type things up. And I have this piece of paper that just sits in a drawer. But the reality is like big business, that's what they want. They want those things written in a right, in a certain way. They want everything to be done a certain way. Cause if there's things that are missing, those are red flags to those people. The bigger the stack of papers in that drawer, the bigger the payout. The, the better, yeah. It can't, sometimes, yeah. Most of the time, yeah. I, agree I mean, it, it makes you think like, okay, your flower brand, your hash brand should be two different brands because you have two different acquisitions possible now. Maybe you start to create you know, different levels of brands. You know, obviously mm -hmm. your smalls, obviously your larges, your tops. I mm -hmm. mean, it, it really starts to layer businesses because you're getting more darts now to throw at the board mm -hmm. for acquisition if if that's your mm -hmm. end goal, right? And, and then when you bring up seven up separate companies, I mean, that's kind mm -hmm. of the communication with your attorney to figure out what is your ultimate goal. Because if you throw all those in one company, all those things, if that company is, you know, so, so example is like when we set up a company for licensure, right? We have a, one company that gets the cannabis license. So company A, LLC, that company goes and applies for the license. Then you create company B LLC. That company holds all of your intellectual property, all your SOPs, everything, and it licenses itself. And they might be the same owners, but what you're doing is company A, which is a license holding entity, is subject to what's called 280E. It's a federal tax code. Um, you know, you could be manufacturing cocaine, you still got to pay 
taxes on it. I mean, you could be trapping, trapping through the mail. You still got to pay taxes on it. And if you're licensed, you pay that same exact tax. And basically what it means is you can only deduct cost of goods sold. And so those are things that actually bring value to the end product. And one of those things is intellectual property. So if you have a company that's doing the license work, paying a company that's providing the IP, it's technically bringing value, right? Like if the example would be like, if I had a, just a, a bag of weed and it's worth 20 bucks, all of a sudden I throw a black leaf sticker on it and now it's worth 45 bucks. That's value. That's all deductible. And so it's trying to create a structure to where you're not getting slapped so hard in the face by the city, the state and the federal government on, on taxes. Um, so understanding structure is important. And, and like you said, too, if you separate those companies, you separate liability. So if you have a cultivation, a license and a cultivation, and then you put all your IP in there, if someone slips and falls in there, um, they're suing all the assets of that company. And if your IP is in there, you know, you can say sayonara to that. So, you know, separating companies, I mean, the bigger you, the, the smaller you are, you want to start off small because you don't want to be a company with no licensing deals, no real income coming in with five different companies. Cause that's five different taxes. You got to file five different fees, set of fees you got to file, right? It's just a lot, but you can always grow into that. Um, but at, at a minimum you start off with one and then as you grow, you just kind of separate your assets, you separate your liability, um, and you just structure it in a way to kind of keep more money in your pocket. Um, you know, just as an example, like I just heard of the Augusta rule. Have you guys ever heard of that? Mm -mm. It's an IRS rule from Augusta, Georgia. So all those people during the masters, they would rent their houses for two weeks and they didn't want to pay taxes on it. And so they lobbied to the government and they're like, well, we don't want to pay taxes on it anymore. And so they're like, okay, now any personal income, you can rent out your house for 15 days and not pay any personal income tax. So like my firm rents out my house, you know, once every month to do a, to do a meeting and that money comes out of my business into my personal account tax-free. I get it deducted on my business expense. And so it's just things like that, just slowly setting up your business into a way where it's like, you know, you don't have to pay the government all of the money. You don't just send them the tax bill. There's ways to structure it legally within the IRS code to like put more money in your pocket. Wow. I mean, Hickok Law Firm, if you ain't already know, I mean, that's the street. <laughs> like, bro, know. dropping game, honestly. What are some questions? I mean, that we had so many questions yeah, come in I got some. Uh, to first smoke of the day. We actually put this out and we have questions that were brought to us by people out there. And it was it was everything from I got caught with weed to, you know, I have a business and this is what I'm trying to figure out and structure in Oklahoma, Colorado, all over the place. And I mean, all right, we'll give a we'll, shout out to Cisco underscore AF 817. What legal advice does he have for people who want to start a seed company? Okay, this this actually brings up an interesting. Did you guys hear about the DEA letter? Yeah. So so obviously we're touching yeah, on that. I I got blown up. Like I never really make like posts online because I just feel weird being on that. I all my posts are just like food and desserts that I eat. Um, but that was one where I was like, yo, I gotta I gotta call this because I'm getting called. People are like, oh, we're setting up an online company, start shipping it. So basically what we need to start with is understand the farm bill act. So the farm bill act is a federal act that allowed for made hemp legal. Essentially anything under 0.3% THC is considered hemp and you can do it by registering through the County of your state. And then to the federal government, you can grow hemp, you could sell hemp, you can manufacture products with hemp and on so your property. Uh, well, not like on this property, but like on, on a commercial property. I mean, there's, okay. there's still, you can, you're not just going to grow hemp like in your backyard, but Got like you. you can get a commercial property, get it registered through the state, and then you register it through the federal government. And there's some rules to like do that. So what this letter said was that 
the federal government does not define seeds and clones as cannabis. It's all hemp because as long as it's under a 0.3% THC concentration, which seeds and clones are typically are. I mean, I don't know if anyone's that new. So everyone was like, oh, that means it's legal to ship, to sell. And what I had to kind of distinguish is that all that letter said is that it's not a violation of the Controlled Substance Act, right? So that's one section of law. Law and operations in the world encompass a lot of things. Like when you run a business, you're dealing with employment law, you're dealing with product liability law, you're dealing with IP law. You know, there's other areas that potentially could get your ass busted. And so all this is saying is that it doesn't violate Controlled Substances Act. It doesn't mean that it doesn't violate the Farm Bill Act, which regulates hemp. So you can't just sell seeds and sell clones and identify them as hemp without registering with your proper county and federal authorities. And then what's probably worse is that if you play that out in your head of, okay, okay, what does this look like? I create a, I create an online profile. I put all these seeds and I say hemp seeds, right? That's, you're not going to say they're cannabis seeds. You're going to say hemp seeds. Now that, what that creates is what's called like product liability. You are now marketing this product as a hemp. And now I buy that thinking it's hemp. I put it into the ground and it's not hemp. It doesn't come out as hemp, right? And now the feds come and bust my ass because I have 40% THC products when I thought it was hemp. Now they're pointing the finger back at you, suing you for lost profits, um, you know, a, a bunch of other things too. So from that perspective, seeds you still can't do in my opinion. I mean, I'm fairly conservative. Uh, what I heard from Eric long ago was cannabis is, if you think about the army when they're breaching a building, right? They kick down that door. That first guy who kicks down the door, there's a possibility that I, I do get shot, right? And then everyone else gets to come in and kind of clear the way and it's all good. Like, do you want to be that first person? Like, yeah, you could potentially make a fuck ton of money and make it through there and maybe not get shot. But in my opinion, somebody's going to be made an example of in this industry um, and doing things like that, you know, at least for me, if you're coming to me for advice, I'm going to have to tell you, you know, not to do it that way. No, that's not to say that's not, you know, there's a lot of people that are out there selling seeds and claiming it's uh bird seed. It? No, I hemp. haven't heard the bird seed. I've heard uh I'll get packaging uh, a lot souvenirs. That says, it's yes. a souvenir, not for not for growing, which I think is what they do in like Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Um but I Does any know. of that pass? Let's just go ahead and clear that for all because I buy huge breeders and it'll say bird seed or hemp seed or souvenir. So Does any of that work? It'll, it'll pass until it doesn't. I mean, it's not legal, no. But so it's not gonna save them. I mean, it might make someone pass through and be like, oh, it's in just birdseed. Yeah, and not not see it. So you might okay. get through there. But, you know, the, there's a – with state law, like the police are diff – different. Uh, the police see an action and they deal with it and they arrest you and it's right there. But the feds aren't like that. The feds sit back and wait, right? So they see you posting something with souvenirs and stuff. They're like, okay, you want to play that game? We'll just sit back and watch. We'll see you posting on Instagram driving in your McLaren, you know, posting up all your cash, you know, and your guns and all this. I mean, Instagram is your own, is the worst self snitching tool. I mean, you know, you're just constantly posting things. Federal government will just sit there and just watch. They're in no hurry. You know, they'll let you, they'll let you start crushing the game, you know, start buying houses, start buying all those cars. They'll just sit there and wait, collect all your friends up and then, and then close the door on you. So, you know, the, the federal, the federal government, um, you know, you don't want to mess with them. My opinion. I think I think this this game has so much money to be made. And if you're throwing away your chance to make some points on some packs or some seeds, you're missing the bigger picture. Ooh. Because the, big, the bigger picture is is selling out to the Philip Morris's. I mean, that's what's gonna give you life 
generational changing money, you know, or whoever like, the, the, the big entity is in yeah, your whoever, part whoever of the that industry, ends up being, whoever yeah. that, you know, multi-state operator ends up being, but like, there'll, there'll be multiple companies for sure. Yeah. And they'll all be competing. Some will pass, mm -hmm. some will fail. Some um, will be for just concentrate, some for flowers, some for tobacco, but you know, all different levels of the, the mm -hmm. game too. For sure. For sure. And I think if you get caught up, you know, slinging some seeds, cause you want to make a couple grand here and there, you know, it might be good money, but that's not, not necessarily life-changing money and it's not money you could use to buy a house and you know buy a car and all those i mean you can't use it to buy a car but um yeah so the slow answer is if you want to set up a seed company you got to go get as a licensed nursery in the state of california and that'll allow you to propagate seeds and clones and develop research and development and then sell those clones and seeds to other licensed cultivators and if you want to do that in every state every state's a little different not all of them have nursery licenses but that's essentially the the real legal way to do it, which is one of the easiest licenses to get one of the easier. Let me put it that way is a nursery license. So for seed breeders, get the nursery license. I mean, it's such a small hoop to jump through for such a large payout because mm -hmm. seeds is the largest payout of any part of oh, this industry. So I just want to so be much. honest. Yeah, it is so cheap. To so make so for you to just have to get a nursery license and you can make seeds legally. And now those seeds could be potentially shipped countries or worldwide pretty soon when it goes federally yeah, legal. Day, yeah. And I, I mean, the upside is massive for that. So the, they need to come speak to someone like you because what you could do is damn near run your dreams by someone like you pay mm -hmm. the fee for a retainer mm -hmm. and say, this is what I'm looking to do for a living and for my brand. And you can legally help us navigate, help brands, help people navigate through that without mm -hmm. pitfalling a federal indictment or for something sure. crazy sure. and then you're out of the game before it even starts and honestly what i would recommend for most i mean it, everybody's a little different but the most of the recommendations i give is not to go get your own license because that while it is a little bit easier it's it's definitely more expensive i mean you got to go get a building you got to wait a year to go through the city licensing and the state licensing you got to get security i mean all those things are expensive and Technically, at this point, you're not. If you open up a new nursery, you're not supposed to bring in new seeds. Um, like the, you're just not. I mean, they mm -hmm. there's ways and metric that I'm sure people can like manipulate, but that isn't the. I think if you're starting out, the best way is to license your IP and work with somebody who's already doing it. Because what that gets you, it gets you a chance to step into a licensed facility. Someone who comes from traditional, I mean, going into the licensed facility, it's it's day and night, right? I mean, you're tracking every plan, you're tracking every dollar, you're paying employees above the table. You know, there's so many things that are different. And if you just try to go from that, you're going to have so many pitfalls because you're going to, you're going to fuck up a bunch of times just from not realizing what you're doing. And so if you can set up a deal with a nursery and you set up some sort of, you know, IP licensing deal, you can kind of work underneath their system, understand the rules to the game, verify that what you're producing is what the, what society wants, right? Like maybe, maybe the strains that you have aren't as fire as you think and nobody wants them. Then you didn't just drop 2 million trying to run a nursery and trying to, you know, distribute all that. So I would always say like, re reach out to your connects. I mean, your network is, is the most valuable asset. That's something that a Chad cannot buy. Like your friends, somebody owes a nursery, somebody knows a nursery, somebody will let you be in there and like post up your products in there and, you know, let you move it through there. And I would, I would, I would advise to try, try using someone else's system before you go out and get your own. Could you touch on that one part? Um, uh, I know I keep bringing up so many questions because I've, you just touch the part where, 
you say you can't bring any new genetics into I mean, people don't even understand that, that right now you can't you could get a nursery license, be a new business and they say you can't bring any genetics in. Yeah, I mean, at a, for a while they were kind of like closing their eyes to it and saying, you know, we'll give you like six months to kind of put them on. But they had a sunset period, so they closed that. So, you know, I, I think the state generally knows. I mean, if you look at the regulations, there's like two sections on nursery. There's nothing on tissue culture. And you just think about how big both of those pieces of this industry are about how, I mean, everything starts from there, right? Like if you don't have a healthy plant, the whole system's fucked. Um, they don't have any regulations on tissue culture. So it's just something that the state just never fathomed or, or walked down. And, you know, if you lose the diversity of the plant, I think you lose a lot of what makes these different companies better. If everybody's growing wedding cake, you know, it sucks for us as a consumer, right? <laughs> you know, like uh, then yes. we're all smoking the same shit. Um, so, you know, I can't explain how people get stuff in through metric. Um, but I do know that people find ways, you know, life finds a way and people find a way to get their genetics into a space that they're not supposed to. Definitely um, a law that needs to be changed. There should be a grace period for any new business, any new entity was, entering. So it's but there like should be how, across for the board. Long, for how long is well, it? For any new business, you have six mm -hmm. months. For so if you start a okay. business now, you have six months to get new genetics into your mm -hmm. business. It gives you enough time to source things, to mm -hmm. pop seeds. Six months. Mm -hmm. That gives you enough time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. That's one to two crops. Mm -hmm. It's a figuring out phase. Yeah, for sure. For them to just close the door and pretend that's like Amsterdam saying, like, you can't grow weed here, but we'll turn an eye to everything coming in it's like let's just it, it was so weird to me that like the state put a lot of regulations where we need to speak to someone like you and read it because none of them make sense there's so many rules that just for cultivators are oh, yeah. very difficult to understand and it, i think so a lot of them still don't make sense and you know with law in, in america we live under common law which is like you kind of have general rules of law but then those laws are filled in with context through case law Right. Like a certain situation happens and then you argue it in court and that explains what this means. Um, and with the regulations right now, we just haven't had that yet. We haven't had people suing um, to help understand what some of these regulations mean. So there's still a lot of unknowns, which is helpful for people in your position because it allows for reasonable interpretation. So if the state tries to come and bust you and you can reasonably say like, well, this is how I read this regulation. This is what it says to me. And you could point to that, like, there's a good chance you're not going to get fucked, you know? Mm. Um, but once they define it and say, okay, no, we've litigated this. This is what has to happen. There's no wiggle room. There's no, you know, it's black and white at that point. Um, right now, it's still, there's still a lot of gray. But every day that we move from January 1st, 2018, it gets a lot more black and white because the state is getting, obviously, way more money. They're starting to figure out what their own rules say. I mean, back in the day in 2018, like, when I talk to these state agencies, they didn't know what was going on. They'd come into facilities and just like in awe, like, oh, my gosh, this looks so cool. Like not really knowing what's going on, like didn't really know the regulations, just checking it out. But they're starting to get educated. They're starting to get a lot more money for enforcement. They're starting to push on these things. I mean, not too long ago, you know, CDTFA went and did that raid on the Jungle Boys. Um, they did a raid a couple of days before that on one of my clients. And that's like something they never do. Like. You could be a burger, you know, just a little mom and pop burger shop, never pay taxes for 20 years. There's a good chance the CDTFA will never come and raid you. But because they know it's cannabis, because they know you have tons of cash on site, they just they just came and did it. And, uh, you know, that was that was kind of a crazy situation because like I got all the paperwork because they texted me. They're like, dude, this doesn't seem real. Like it's like the CHP and usually like LAPD will be the ones that come and do raids. This was like a state agency. 
and like their paperwork just looked like somebody like did it up on word and like faked it. So I had to like show up there. We had to call LAPD to like verify that this was really like CHP. Like, like there was no notice, no warning. Um, and they were already grabbing money and already going through shit. Oh, so you so don't basically know. They shut down the whole thing and they took all the money out of the tills. They took money out of the tip jar. <laughs> I heard they were taking money out of people's purses that they, that they thought were part of the business. I mean, every dollar in there, they just snagged up, wrote them a receipt and said, thanks. And all these people had like payment plans or were like discussing to pay, you know, had a, like my client had a, a appointment the next week to pay CDTFA a, a good chunk of the money and they still came in raided. Um, Why are we treated like that? Why is the cannabis industry treated like this? Because we're easy target because we have cash. Well, so a few reasons. One, because it's still federally illegal, you don't have freedoms. You don't have freedoms in the sense that like, cities and states don't have to compete for your business right so like so like when you form a company you can form it in nevada you can form it in delaware you get different tax advantages by forming that right so the reason they do that they're competing for your business they're competing for your money states don't have to do that because it's still federally illegal so it doesn't matter if you set up in montana because it's cheaper you ain't getting your shit in california so you know and this and so now when you break that down to a city level on each city you know they have no incentive to reduce their taxes because you know, what are you going to do? You're going to go to another city that also has high taxes. You know, there's no competition. And once you federally legalize it and people can go to Montana and people can go to Oklahoma and ship everything out, cities and states are going to have to reduce their taxes in order to compete for your business. But right now there's none of that. You're just, you just have to suck on their dick and hope that they treat you right. right? Like you don't really have another say in that. So that's one, that's first. My second one is I think part of the culture that was created in the Prop 215 market where you had a lot of people driving, you know, McLarens and Ferraris and Lamborghinis and having super nice Rolexes and all these things that created this image of like the rich cultivator that you guys just have all this money in the world. And so to the cities and states are like, all right, well, we're going to tax that back. Um, and so I think it, it makes it hard for some of these proponents to reduce taxes to say, you know, take out, take away all our, ta you know, lower these taxes when they pull up in the Lambo. Like I have clients that like owe me, owe me money and they come to a meeting in the Lambo. I'm like, dude, I'm, yeah, I got to hustle you for five grand. And like, you're rolling up to me in like, you know, $250,000 car. Like, what is this? Um, so I think part of the image, it's, it makes it hard to say, what was me? Like we're poor, you know, you're overtaxing us. I mean, they are, I mean, no other, no other item in, you know, in the world gets taxed this way. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a combination of just the scenario that we're in and Timeline. the culture that we create. Um, and eventually it'll get better. You keep pushing, you keep, we keep coming together and, you know, expressing our, you know, our voices. Hopefully it'll get better. We're the first ones through the door. Just yeah, like right you now. said, well, that's what's happening. Well, so uh, Eric brought this point up and it's a great point. We're actually like, we're the first people medically because we, you know, allowed medical cannabis in 1996, but it's actually really Colorado and Washington that started the real rec market. and was distinguished while well, we were, were distinguished from them is that, you know, they flipped on the switch of legalization and said, okay, you're right. This is how you do legally. Right. And so everyone did it legally in California. They're like, okay, you've been operating for 25 plus years. We're going to try and make you legal. And like, you know, we've been ducking and diving through all these laws for 25 years. And now you're trying to like put some shackles on us. It's, it's a lot harder to like contain that industry when, you know, we're out, we've been out here kind of running freely for, for so long. It's, a, it's just a different, you know, these states aren't the same, the same way each client is different. You know, each state is its own little unique beast. Um, so 
but I mean, you can make it in California. I think you could probably make it anywhere. So you've got a brand that crushes in California, right? Like you can show up in New York and say, you know, here you go. Oklahoma. Here you Anywhere go. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. The Mecca. Cali is the Mecca. That's why, that's why the next step I think is to get into like a, a Canada, somewhere in Canada, because they're allowed to ship anywhere in the world. That's also legal. If you're really trying to like spread out. Licensing deal wise. Yeah, exactly. License and and that's Canada all you would do. It's just, ship worldwide. just license your IP to another group in, in Canada. And that's how you grow. Or get them the genetics, them. make sure it's cultivated mm-hmm. up to your standard, make sure you have a good deal in place, and then you could ship potentially worldwide. I mean, and, and so the, the good deal, I think, I think it's also important to like, you have to reframe your mindset because I think a lot of people in the industry, they're used to getting 4k a pack and like, you know, having, you know, crazy margins on things and you get into the license space. It's just not that way. Like the employment taxes, the you know city taxes, state tax, all these things shrink your margins. And I think the play again is the long-term play is trying to get, trying to get a business to want to buy you out. Right. And the way that you bring that value is showing that you can, you have sell through in multiple States and a lot of product being sold. And sometimes that requires you to not make as much money. It's not always about making the $5 and 50 cents per package. Um, it's about getting your brand out there with good quality products to where people are smoking it and posting it and wearing your gear. Um, and if that means you're taking a cut for the longer play, I think you'll end up making more money if if your product is in fact good and you know it's it's hitting you know it's hitting that uh, you know that group of people that you're trying to trying to access. Yeah, sometimes the people you do business with is more important than the business you do. Oh, that was a saying that I used to so that used important. to echo. And it's yeah, sometimes that opportunity with the right people, even though it's a lower, you know, but the long term play is there, mm-hmm. jump on it. And mm-hmm. I mean, man, your your uh, your network and you being able to organize that contract is so vital. Mm-hmm. Uh but just just to talk about yeah. more about that, about your your team and network, because I I see this happen a lot of people is you know, they have the people, the traditional market people have their core group of people, right? They're like the right hand grower and, you know, some trimmers and stuff that have been with them from the beginning. And the reason that they're there might not necessarily be that they're their best worker, but they're trustworthy, right? Like that's like a goal is like, can I trust you to be there with the money, with the product and no, I'm not getting robbed, right? But as you get into a licensed place, those, those values, I mean, you still want, obviously want someone trustworthy and honest, but like you have cameras everywhere, you have security, you have implementations in place to prevent those type of things. And so um, I, f- I see a lot of businesses bring those people along and those people f- can sometimes feel that they're untouchable, that, you know, that they, that, that I've been there at the beginning, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rolling with this team. And I think the difficult, having difficult conversations and a different analysis of your business, sometimes you got to let those people go if they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and it's important, like you said, to have a, a strong team around you. And if people aren't carrying their portion, like you got to cut them. Um, and as tough as that is, like, that's what business is. Like we're all here moving for towards a goal. And, you know, now as you're, as a licensed business, you have access to so many more employees. I like before you didn't really have access to lawyers, to accountants, like finding those were like very rare to find an accountant that would do, you know, nonprofit cannabis stuff. Now there's, there's a fuck ton of them. There's so many of them. Um, and it goes with HR or trimmers. I mean, all those things, you have more people you can pull from and hopefully you can get better talent because, you know, having weak talent on your team, I mean, it makes the whole system crumble. So um, you got to reassess your whole team as you come into a licensed facility and figure out, make sure that everyone's moving towards that same goal. Do you think that retail should move towards an alcohol, like a uh, liquor store model, not a hundred percent markup? 
like retail right now, I mean, they take a massive markup mm-hmm. on the retail. Is that just going to be a standard for our business? Or because like you go to a liquor store, they don't make a hundred percent markup on every single. No. They make it on maybe some of the the lower end stuff or some of the stuff that needs it. But the high, the Dom Perignon, they, that that bottle is not a hundred dollar and then goes to two. I mean, mm-hmm. they make a smaller percentage. Why do dispensaries take such a large cut? Mm. Um, again, uh, market demand. There's just not too many. It's not like there's an unlimited retails. Like there's only so many of them. And there's actually less now than there were in the, you know, the, the nonprofit days. Right. So um, they can kind of control the price points with them. But I, I think where it comes from is really the federal taxes. Um, so 280E, what we talked about, the COGS, um, it's different for every business. Right. It's cost of goods sold, things that go into the value of the plant. And when you get to retail, there's nothing that they input that increases value of the plant. So their only deduction is what they buy the product for. So their employees, their rent, their insurance, their lawyers, their accountants, none of that is deductible. So they're getting taxed on all of that. So the reason why that, that markup is, is that, that, that markup that they add, that has to cover everything. That has to cover their rent. That has to cover their employees. That has to cover their taxes, me, you know, all those things. And so that's why it's that their margins are slimmer than everyone else because they're taxed at even a higher bracket. And that's just the federal taxes, right? We're not talking about the state taxes, which has an excise tax of 15%. You have sales tax, right? Which is varies, but it's about 9%. Um, and then on the city of LA has their own tax of 5% for anybody wants medical and 10% for rec, right? So it's like, you know, let's just take 10% plus the 15, that's 25%, you know, and then you have all the taxes that the cult, so Sorry, let's let's rewind this. Let's just take the the flower, right? So you you grow the flower. The cultivator in LA grows the flower, right? So they're taxed a cultivation tax of like nine dollars and seventy five cents per pound. Every pound that's got to go to the state. They also have their federal taxes on the city level in LA. They have a uh, a two percent gross tax. So if they make a hundred bucks, two dollars has got to go to the city before you deduct anything, which is a pretty rare to have a gross tax. Right? We were talking about gross net taxes, all those things. Um, so that cultivator's tax, and then let's just say it passes it to a distro in LA. That distro has the federal taxes. It has to collect the cultivation tax. It also has a one percent tax from the city that it has to pay. And then they take that 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 flower, and then it goes to the retail. Now that product again now is taxed five or ten percent from the city. It's taxed its excise tax from the state, and then also the federal government. So it's taxed all so many times by the time it gets to the consumer. I mean that's why. It, is a hundred bucks, you know, to buy, you know, a gram of concentrate is because it's just so, so overly taxed. Um, but I, I think to go back to your question, why, why retail has to do that double market is because they have so many expenses and mm-hmm. almost no deductions. Gotcha. And I think, I think retail, if I was going to advise someone that might be the lower piece that I would advise someone to go to, because I think when it becomes federally legal, I don't see, I don't see the regulations just the allowing bit, for right? only a dispensary, right? Like why wouldn't you be able to sell it in CVS or Ralph's? Convenience store, 7-Eleven, yeah, so, so that, that, everywhere. that niche like might go away. Um, so if you have one, it might be a good time to try and sell out and make some money while it's, you know, still has cachet. Which brings to the next topic. Uh, what do you think about consumption lounges? Because I, I kind of feel like that's, that's a, a wave that hasn't happened that needs to happen the market needs it and i think we're going to see more and more of it Mm -hmm. as it continues to just pop up and be online in more states yeah i mean there's a new law that's passing on the state that's going to allow people to actually make food inside the consumption lounges so like 
the old it was Lowell's Cafe it was and the then it was the original cafe. They had like a separate business that made the food and delivered it to. Have you ever been there, the Cannabis yeah, Cafe? Yeah, we went one time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't really like it. I mean, I thought the food was overpriced and the weed was overpriced, and maybe just from my old school days of I just enjoyed showing up at the restaurant and just like hot boxing in like the parking lot with my boys and then going in and grabbing some food, you know, like that, that was part of my culture. So being in there and smoking, it's cool. I'm still trying to get used to it. I mean, I, I like the, I went to a couple in Spain and those were really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out because I think every culture is a little different and you have to take that into account of like how people smoke and consume cannabis and not everyone likes to go and consume cannabis in a public place around a bunch of people they don't know in a party type environment. Um, so I think it could be cool, but I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a niche thing or if it'll be something that's massive. I think, I think having something unique, like a bed and breakfast, I think th- things like that would be cool, right? Where you're like at a hotel and it's kind of curated towards weed. Yeah. Like a, just a restaurant where you could smoke weed at. I mean, I kind of smoke weed at restaurants all the time anyway. I just <laughs> take the vape pen anyway. Welcome to California. Yeah, like, you know, no, you're out in the patio. Most people don't really care. So I don't know. I mean, what about a service business where you don't sell cannabis, like a lounge, but you don't actually sell cannabis? Do you think the city would bust that up? Or do you think that, why hasn't that caught on, right? Like you sell papers, you sell other things. It's, you know, drinks, food maybe is a local delivery that's there quick. Yeah, I mean, and, and so I mean, you can smoke weed in anywhere that's legal, that's a thousand feet from a school, at least in California. So, ostensibly, if the landlord allowed it, you could have a place where people smoked weed inside. Um, I, I think where you start, where you start finding issues is like the liability concerns, right? You start allowing people to smoke there, and then they go out and they drive and they injure somebody. A person who's injured, it's they they're the ones who can get to recoup the benefit, so they can sue that person. They could also potentially sue you for potentially over-serving them, um, for allowing that stuff. So there's liability that involved. And then to prevent that liability, you got to go get insurance. And now will somebody provide you insurance for doing that type of activity? So there are ways you could do to have like a space like that and curate a space. Um, I mean, I, I know Hazy, have you guys ever heard of Hazy LA? Like a, a marketing agency, but they did this cool thing in Wisdom, which is in like LA. Couple, It's a couple, it's like a... It's like a a big event space and they just had a bunch of brands in there and you can buy weed there, but it was like through a delivery app. So the delivery would come and you could smoke there and host that event. So there are, you know, for sure, for sure. I mean, back when I was at Chevin's one of the, in 2018, like early on part of the rules allow any adult to give another adult, uh, up to 28.5 grams of flour or eight grams of concentrate if they're a rec patient and if they're a medical patient up to eight ounces. So you can, you can legally, I can give you an ounce of weed for free. I do have one more question though, uh, that, that, that has been written in, um, getting watered down percentages. So say you, you get into a business with people and they have these massive dreams of scaling this business to hundred million dollars and you're in it 20% right now, but you didn't pay yourself a salary. You have minimum salary, right? And all your time is spent working in this business when it comes time for a capital call. And everyone, all the the owners need to put up their percentage worth of money mm-hmm. and you don't have that million dollars or half a mil or whatever the X amount of money is because you didn't take a salary or because you haven't had time to make other money like investors have on the side. You've mm-hmm. been putting all your time as an operator. Mm-hmm. You end up getting watered down. I've seen this with guys even that are further in the industry than I am. Guys mm-hmm. I look up to where I've seen them start at 20% and when it ends, they're at 4%. 
six percent ownership because they've had to raise capital multiple times to go to new states and to do amazing things. And the 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 foundation is always, well, the business will be worth more. So your percentage will be less, but it's worth more. Right. But that's not always the case because businesses like we always know fail. Some don't make as much money as we thought. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you protect yourself from that? Because that's something I've seen extensive multi-state operators fall into with investors Mm -hmm. because it's like, hey, we're doing another round of capital call. We need a half a million per person at your percentage or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't have that. You're the operator. You didn't. You took a minimum salary because Mm -hmm. you think you're building this massive business. Mm -hmm. What then? Because this happens. Well, the answer to any legal question is it depends. You know, yeah. So many, so many variables. If, if it's at that point, you might be fucked because mm-hmm. the contract's in place and you kind of got to roll with that. And you know, maybe there's some ways that you can get around that. But what um, about protecting yourself? So it, it's all about starting. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. when you before you sign that deal, is thinking about what that future looks like, right? Like, because there's always a section called capital calls in an operating agreement and something like that, and you need to see what that says and figure out. Okay, well, what does this mean? If they if they need a million dollars, I own twenty percent. I got to put up twenty percent of that. How do I how do I deal with that? So, you know, it's figuring out what those pitfall, potential pitfalls are, and then working with the other side because you can't just unilaterally say I'm not doing that, right? Um, all the other people have to put up money, but not you like that always doesn't sit well with them. So it's trying to come up with unique ways to make everybody as happy as possible. And so, you know, there's ways you could do and say, Hey, I'll take a, I'll take a smaller salary just so I can pay for my house or pay for whatever. But my typical worth is say 250,000. You pay me a hundred thousand, that 150 will count towards money going into, you know, my, my contribution account so that maybe you don't have to fill out as much. Um, you can have caps and say, okay, you can reduce me, but I can re- reduce no less up to 10% or something like that. So loans from partners, you could say, I will take could, a loan from the partners you, you already try. at yeah. X percentage. Them, and, I mean, it's like, to, do they yeah. want to give out a loan, which is a liability that you might not pay back and they don't get percentages. So for them, it's like, they better be, you know, it just doesn't make sense for them to willingly do that because they could lose the money and they don't get the percentages. So, but that's why you got to think about this because yeah. you can get yourself yeah. in a bind. And next thing you know, you started a company and you own the minority percentage. And that's why, I mean, you, I try to, I mean, I definitely have clients that I'll send. So like what, the way I work, right. Is like client will send me a contract. I'll review it, put my notes, comments for them, send it to them and say, okay, you need to read it, review my comments and, you know, make sure you understand those things. And a lot of times they don't, you know, they're busy, they're doing those things. And I understand that. And I'm here to like help explain that, but it's really on you. I mean, I'm not in your business every day. I'm not sitting there following you step-by-step watching things go down in your business. So it's like, you need to take the reins of your own business, of your own life. I mean, this contract is your life. Like you got to figure it out. I'm here to help that, help explain, help figure out ways to make it better for you. But you really got to take, you know, some uh, responsibility in, in reviewing that and trying to understand it. if you don't like, let's talk about it. Let's make sure you understand it because yeah, maybe it costs more the first time you read an operating agreement, but then the second time it's easier because you know, those terms you're like, Oh, I've seen this because like, they're almost always the same. There's a little things in there and it's just practice. It's just reviewing. It. And the more you practice it, the more you understand it's going to make you a better negotiator, a better business partner, you know, it's going to let you understand what needs to happen with your business as you go forward. If you just sign the contract without knowing, you don't know how to sell your interest. You don't know what you can or can't do. You don't know if some action you're doing potentially allows them to take away your whole interest because there are terms like that that you put in there, right? Like if 
If you bring dis, uh, you know, harm to the company in some way, violate some sort of fiduciary duty, get caught for illegal grow. Some companies don't care about that, but if that's in your contract, you could potentially lose all your percentages. And so, you know, again, like I'm a tool to help you, but like you, it's your life, you know, it's your contract. You got to make sure you understand this. And if you don't, you got to ask the questions. I mean, while well, he looks up a question, you do, you do clauses, but clauses <laughs> like that, small clauses, like, I mean, most hash makers and cultivators don't think that it's like, yeah, you could lose your brand by just having those extra plants at your house or doing a side wash for some head stash or man, I do this on the side just to make a little extra money. You need to make sure that operating agreement doesn't call for, oh, yeah. And if you do this, which is a great way to sly yeah. way to take the, yeah. and, that you actually lose your it. business. Yes, yeah. they, know. they know. And they know that the reason you're in position and you're ahead of the game is because your extra time is spent doing that mm -hmm. because you are so passionate. They use it against you. Mm -hmm. Don't let that be the case. You know, mm -hmm. like let your passion work for you. Don't let them be able to utilize it against you. And, and, and I think, too, what happens sometimes, too, is that this industry has been built on trust for so long, you know, just handshake deals. And if you break that trust, you know, people will be at your door or people will stop working with you. Right. Like that trust was a unifying piece in this industry. And I think I've seen people try to use that in negotiations of like, yeah, it says that, but we're not going to do that. It'll be fine. And, you know, and then you push back and they're like, try to pull away from the deal or use that as like leverage. So, you know, you, you, you got to go by what's in the contract and you got to make sure you understand it. And it's exactly what it, the way that you want it to be, or if it not exactly, but at least a way that makes you feel comfortable and is even around everyone. Cause you don't want to get in a position like that. Cause sometimes there's just not a, not a way to get out of it and you're mm -hmm. just screwed. You know? Yeah. Okay. We'll go to the next question. It's uh XDOS underscore seven Oh seven. If you have a medical card, can a cop still confiscate your weed? Um, well, assuming this is California, uh, if you don't have a medical card, you can't confiscate your weed. As an adult over 21, as long as you have 28.5 grams of flour or 8 grams of concentrate, you're allowed to have it. If you're a medical patient over 18, you can have up to 8 ounces of flour and they can't confiscate it. Now, if they believe that there's, you know, it's being used to, you know, for illegal purposes, like you got a bunch of little baggies on you. And a scale, maybe, I mean, you could argue that, you know, that's how you, you dose out your, you know, your, uh, your medicine throughout the day is by weighing it and putting it in your own personal bag. So, you know, one o'clock, I got to smoke this bag at two o'clock. I got to smoke this bag, but you know, you don't, obviously you don't speak to cops, but my, um, just so my jar for eight ounces should say head stash on it or should say personal I mean, it use only. Say anything. But if I you mean, have it, a medical card, it's, yeah, I mean, it's yours. So I you mean, got they, it. it's legal in California now. Just don't um, have just, it with scales and baggies. That looks for, like you're, yeah, you're doling it, it out. It potentially creates an issue for other. I mean, but again, at the end of the day, it's likely a misdemeanor. So the cop, is, you know, probably doesn't care as much. Um, so yeah, no stress, bro. And don't don't keep open containers while you're driving. So the smell of weed is no longer probable cause to search your car. So what about smoking and driving? I know that's a well, big thing because so, a lot of people so like again, to the create. Smell, the smell isn't probable causes to search your car. Wow. But if they see like use, like a, like a, like a lit joint or even like a non-lit joint, but like a joint that's been burnt, like that could be potential that you've, you know, you've been drinking and dry or smoking and driving and they can smoking test you. So I just burn yeah. down a joint, my car's fogged out and I get pulled over, right? I see the lights. Throw that shit out. Well, he, well, and I put yeah. everything out though. And there's nothing like you don't see any ashes. You don't see anything, right? Mm -hmm. We've been doing it right. Nashing in a bottle that we can close and throw behind us. And, uh, what happens then? He can't search the car because of that smell? Well, 
the smell is not probable cause because you can't take it to court and show the jury like this is what I smell and this is what gave me probable cause to search your car. Ooh. But what it can do is if he thinks you're driving erratically and like whatever the reason, he could still give you a DUI test. Okay, so there's a, so, a fine line of gray area yeah, right there and, with what's going to happen. And the reality is, is like they're cops, yeah. right? And so they can <laughs> step on your rights whenever they want. Um, now you can go to court and fight it and say, yeah, you did that. and I'm going to sue you. But, you know, they have qualified immunity, so you can't go after them personally. So they don't give a fuck. That's why, you know, you guys know the Pop Brothers at law? Yeah. Yeah. So I, like, I, I, I like the message that they're saying, you know, shut the fuck up. Don't talk to them. But I also think like you kind of got to be nice with the cops. I mean, ultimately they have your future in your hands. If you're a dick to them, I've never seen someone who's a dick to a cop get out of a ticket. Right. But I've gotten out of tickets being nice. So, um, you know, definitely, yeah, know your rights, but the cops can still violate your rights and still mess up your day, you know, put you in the back of the cop car and now you're fucked for the day. Even if it ends up being nothing, like your day is not wasted. So, um, yeah, but if there's ever a situation like that, call Eric Shevin. There we go. Uh, There's the answer. No, there's the answer. No, I got out of the criminal game after like my first Mm -hmm. case. I was like, this is because it takes, it's a different, it's a different type of mindset. Like you Mm -hmm. really you have to put your own belief system behind you and like know that you're the voice for this person in court. If you don't believe them, like it's one thing if I'm like in court for somebody who did cannabis, like obviously I'd advocate for that. But like I had to do a case of like rape and you know, like statutory rape and stuff. And it's like, it was too hard for me to like not be myself and be like, yo, fuck this guy. Like, you know, you're the white knight fighting for the, the cannabis guys that are legacy brands trying to, you know, no, I I try to stay mostly business stuff. Um, but yeah, any okay, let's go to questions? the next question of femme fatale. It's like a BCN. French word of saying enough. She femme. says, uh, or he, they say, why do they charge so much? In the end, business lawyers earn the biggest bucks. And then they wrote another one. They own, they earn more than growers for sure. <laughs> Maybe now. What do you yeah, maybe. I'd say about now. It was always they pretend they th- used to think we mine gold for a living, growers. But it's not that. It's it's a passion project, like anything. The top percentage. If you're passionate about art, the top ten percent make a great living. If you're passionate about law, the top ten percent make a great living. Mm-hmm. No matter what industry you're in, if you're great at it, you make a great living. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like that. I don't think it's different than any other industry. I mean, you know, again, going back to the way I wanted to co- create my company, like. Almost all my clients, probably 90% of my clients are my friends. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I enjoy jumping on calls and just like talking about the industry. I don't feel like I have to charge for that because um, it helps me, helps me understand what you're going through, helps me build some stuff. So I, I try to reduce my, you know, I don't really bill for a lot of those things. But working at a big law firm, like, and you work in big business with Coca-Cola and stuff like that's how you make your money. If you, And that's something you got to kind of understand is differences in lawyers. Like if you go to a big law firm. They got a big bills. They got their office space. They got lawyers. They got associates. They got junior partners. They got paralegals. They got legal assistants. All these things got to get paid. And that's through you. And it goes from, you know, it goes into the associates hands and it goes in the partner's hands and it goes to the paralegal and they're all billing you. And so, you know, you get great work from them, but it, it can end up costing you a lot. You know, mine's a small firm. Like we don't even take all the clients that come to us because it, it's getting to a certain point where I'm going to have to hire another attorney. and you know, it's like, you know, you hire a new attorney or a new employee, they're a representation of you and your firm or you and your business. Um, and it's hard for me to let go of that because of who I am. And I like having my hand in everybody's 
you know, business. Cause then I know what it is you're doing and where you're going. And again, that's what makes me a better attorney is knowing exactly what it is you want to do and where you want to go. You're paying so, for experience. That's what you're paying for. Yeah. You're paying and, and that, all that business experience and shit you've gone through. Yeah. Like that paying. Sure. Hey, how am I going to get paid? Well, inst- this isn't working with gross percentages and all these percentages because people are fudging the books and playing these games with the books. So through your business experience, one of the advice was like basically pay on per unit sold and negotiate, you know, if this doesn't pass testing or this doesn't pass your test of quality, here's the percentage we all split little details that really change the game. That's what you're paying for. In my opinion, when I come to you is like being able to say, well, this in this massive, you know, $20 million deal, this is how it played out. So this is what I would do with your deal Mm -hmm. that right there. What would you pay for that? Mm -hmm. That's why you get paid, you know, X percentage. And I think I'm actually probably closer to the lower end of, of costs. And a lot of it's, because of I'm a young attorney, I don't have kids, you know, I don't have a bloated uh, employment payroll, you know, I, it's just me and my partner and, and an assistant that we do all the work. So the it's three like, Lambos, right? Don't, don't, don't tell him that. Oh, right. shit. In the basketball court. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, I invest my money. Those yeah, Lambos are sick, you know? though. Shit. Worth shit. it. That shit's worth shit. it. The Honda Civic. Doing good. <laughs> yeah. Um, We got... Let's see. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Kenner L Y S R dot Justin. How do I acquire micro business cannabis rights in New York state? That might be. Can't speak on New York. We're only speaking mainly California law here. So to be a lawyer, you have to take a bar in the state that you're practicing. So I took the bar here. And if you want to go practice in New York, you have to take the bar there, which is another two day test. And Mm -hmm. it's, you have to learn their laws and it's super tough. Um, I can go into other states and practice if my clients from California want to move there. So if you guys want to do like a licensing deal, I can work on figuring that out and actually practice law. Um, and again, you know, my, my firm stays small. So unless a client wants to go to New York and actually get their own license, um, there's not really an incentive for me to like learn each and every state's specific rules and requirements. Um, That's awesome though, because we're working on a deal in Washington currently and mm-hmm. it's because I'm a client of yours in California, yeah. a licensing deal, you know, because we know the cult of it, but that's awesome. And, and you don't need to know the rules as much when you're just licensing IP because it's really on the operator that has to do it. Um, I mean, I could speak on this, how to do it in California because um, I don't think we've really talked into how to get a license in California. Like or just, yeah, so, I mean, go to a New York attorney's so, number one. Cannabis yeah, absolutely. Attorney. So if you yeah. have New York questions, find a New York cannabis yeah. attorney. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you get a good affiliate going out there well, it's it, definitely a it, it, growing market oh Quick. for sure i mean every state i mean there's a good opportunity to like be the first in there and, and to run things um and part of what you get with an attorney is not only the experience but also their rolodex like i have a, a long list of clients if somebody's like hey i got all this trim i need a manufacturer i can send you to 10 different people you know i want to do an edible line but i don't know who i got you know five people for that i need so, a cultivator with a brand i need a hash maker with a yeah, brand i need just to making yeah. those connections um and so the thing about New York is I don't know really anyone in New York. So it's like, you kind of want somebody there who can, you know, point you in the direction of like, okay, you need an accountant. Here's a New York accountant. Yep. You need HR. Here's that. Um, so you state by state. Yeah. Let's go to helium Lido. Where to start legally. A lot of us are just home growers that have dreams to be like y'all shout out to you, helium Lido. <laughs> but, um, 
I say for California, where mm-hmm. you know start. if you're a home grower and mm-hmm. you want to start your brand mm-hmm. legally and take those steps. Yeah, so that process. You know, we like? talked about the the one step, which is the IP licensing. I think that's the easiest, the cheapest way to get at least just to test your products in the market, just to see if what you're doing is vibing with you know what 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 the market wants. The other way is to go get your own license, and that's time consuming and costly. Um, Lance, you you know you know um, basically. You know, you have to first find it's a bifurcated process. So you have to first get a local authorization and then you have to go to the state uh, to get a license. And so every city can dictate whether or not it wants to allow for commercial cannabis activity. And then even within that, it can allow for some activities and not all activities. So some cities will allow for distro and manufacturing or just retail or, you know, an unlimited amount of distro and retail or, you know, only a few. And so every city and county is a little different. Not every city and county is constantly allowing applications. Um, A lot of times it's like limited in the way that they'll be like, okay, we'll do 15 retail licenses and you have until January 3rd of 2023 to submit your application. Um, So it's figuring out what cities you want to live in really because like you can go out to Adelanto, you can go to Palm Springs, you can go to Palm Desert, go get a license right now. Um, but you got to fucking live there and your team has to live there and you know, you're far from a lot of other things too. So th- there's a business component too of understanding and figuring out where and why you're going to set up in. There's also the taxes. Every city has different taxes. So there's a few things you want to look at to determine where, you know, you're going to be, I think, Closeness to where your home is is probably the first one because you don't want to have to drive three hours just to get to the shop every day. Um, But you would go through that process, the city's process. Every city is a little bit different. Some cities are straightforward. Fill out this paperwork, submit to us. You're good to go. Some of them have merit-based applications, meaning you got to have like qualifications of principles, proof of funds, uh, SOPs, and you're competing against other big-ass companies that are also competing for a limited amount. Um, Those ones are can be very costly, and there's a potential that you don't even get the license, right? Like you drop a hundred thousand just to try and get the license, then Raffle. you get denied. And now, now what? Um, so that wouldn't be necessarily the first place I would send someone, um, unless you have land or property there. So you go through that whole city process. Um, you got to make sure you find a building in the proper zone, right? This is it's, the hardest part. The building, in my opinion. I've, I've seen yeah. a few people, but get buildings or get leases into buildings. And then they're, you know, they're not in the right zone and they're screwed. They're too or close to a school. Three or, years worth of rent before you get licensed. Yeah. Now it's, it's a little faster now. I mean, it's probably, I mean, you definitely want to have money for three years because you just never know what's going to happen. You never know if we go through another COVID and shipping, you know, fucks up and you can't but the get deal all with the landlord. I feel like is th- where you see some cultivators or some operators, let's say hash makers, anybody nurseries mm-hmm. be able to work the deal. If you can find a landlord that will work with you on rent while you're getting licensed, mm-hmm. while you're doing your build out, that is such a massive be a uh, move that that is a key move. That's mm-hmm. where most of your income is going to get spent. Mm hmm. Just for nothing. It literally goes yeah. towards nothing. And here's the short answer. Go to someone like Chris. Tell him, I want to operate in this city. What do I have to do to do that? No, honestly. And then you're going to be able to give them the exact, instead of like a broad answer, mm. you'll be able to give a very specific answer. Here's exactly what you need mm-hmm. and I need from you to start in this city. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing for operators in my opinion is that rent Mm -hmm. getting around that first year to two years of rent if you can find a landlord that'll give you some leeway Mm -hmm. that is a massive cost reduction and Mm -hmm. you could almost 
you know, do it yourself. Well, and, and ideally you got to have some term in there that lets you get out of the lease if you don't get the license for whatever reason. Cause the worst thing is you're in a three-year lease and now you don't have a license. What the hell are you going to do? And usually that lease is like, you know, it's $3 a square foot when everyone else is paying 80 cents because it's just cannabis. They're charging you more. Right. Um, so the lease lease is super important. And you know, a lot of these things, what I tell client, I mean, I'll do the research. If you're like, Hey, a couple of these cities I want to go into, I'll do the research, but it means it's real easy to figure out if a city allows for it. I mean, all you have to do is just Google the city or County that you're interested in. It'll take you to their webpage in their search box. You type in cannabis and it'll pop up right away, whether or not they allow for it, what the application process is. And again, the more you do on your own, the more knowledge you have, the, the better I'm going to be for you because you're going to start seeing the same terminology, right? We could start speaking similar languages. If I have to constantly, like, you know, about the social equity program mm -hmm. and the different tiers, like if I got to explain that every time and you're not fully grasping it or you're not doing research to figure it out, it's just going to end up costing you more because I'm restating the same stuff. A lot of this stuff, I mean, it's there um, and I can point you to where it is, but you got to, you got to do the reading. You got to do some work. Um, I mean, I can do all the work, but it's going to cost more. And some of those things like licensing, it's just, it's, you don't really need a lawyer to do. I mean, it's a lot of it's, a lot of it can be just basic work. You just clerical work, fill out the info, follow, follow the rules and the guidelines. You just got to read it. So no. I love that we're getting these questions answered. And then the state, sorry, we didn't get to the state part, but the state's the easiest part. If you get the city license, a lot of the same information you use for the city license, you transfer to the state. Um, at that point, it's pretty much just a waiting game. They might want to make, have you make some changes to your application, but you just do those. It's a, it's pretty easy. They, I've never seen them deny somebody after they've gotten the local authorization, the state really relies on the the local authorization. So have faith in yourself and get that landlord on your, on your side, two yeah. big components, have, have faith, get that landlord on your side. We'll do one last question. It's underscore dude, man, co what's the, the biggest setback they've seen in the industry, mainly license hurdles. Mm. Uh, I think the biggest setback has just been themselves, just not being able to, understand that there's a new paradigm and and how you operate this business and you got to grow. Like one of the issues I see a lot is not being able to give up control, right? Like when you're in a grow and your own little grow, you gotta, you gotta know what everything is going on, where that pack is going, how much nutrients, how much water, like you're on everything. But as you, as you start growing, like you just can't, you can't be on metric every day. You can't be dealing with all the different people that want to do business with you. You can't be at every retail doing PADs every day, right? Like you have to give up control and empower the people around you to, to make you better. Um, and I think a lot of people get held up by that fact, by not empowering their employees and letting them, you know, do work because I've never met a person in the cannabis space, whether you're an owner operator or a bud tender that isn't absolutely ecstatic about their job. Like even a trimmer fucking loves trimming. Like, I get to be around weed all the time. Like it's fucking fun. And like these people are passionate about it. And you just got to give them the opportunity to help you build your business. And I think giving up that control and not being able to give up that control is, is harmful because you can't, you can't do everything by yourself. You're not going to be a multimillion dollar by yourself, right? Like Elon didn't get to where he is by doing every single thing he did by himself. He found people that were good at what they did and empowered them. And that's, that's what I think you got to do is find a, on a solid team. Wow. I mean, billion dollars worth of game right there holy shit been a lot of game on this episode man for real appreciate oh, yeah. you having us in your lovely backyard here what a it's vibe. beautiful california day um 
where can we find you? Yeah, let us know. Like, where can people this, reach out? Right here. This is what right here. This is <laughs> What's the address? But where? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But Instagram, yeah, and then alien, what about your? You know, any any way I mean, to reach alien out? Law. I mean, if you're not on Instagram, you're probably not. I'm probably not the lawyer for you at that point. <laughs> not that it says anything, but it's like mm-hmm. that's where I communicate mostly. Um, so if you tap in on a, you know, on my Instagram, you know, I'll give you my phone number. I'll give you my email. We can hop on a call, figure out what it is you're doing, see if mm-hmm. it's something I can help you with. If not, I could pass you to somebody who will. Um, we're just, you know, just chop it up. So yeah, hit me up on Instagram. So at Alien at Law. Yep. And tell me what the first smoke family might hook you up. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. exactly. Yeah. Well, you're yeah, going to get hooked up with knowledge and you're going to be able to maneuver around the industry a lot better and you're not going to lose your brand. That's for damn sure. And you're not going to sign a bad deal. Don't sign that deal. They pressure you to sign. Oh, hey, can you sign this real quick? We need to just real start. We just need to start a side LLC real quick with your name and don't sign that paper at 11 o'clock at night. I've had those meetings where we need to start this thing right now. This is just for this. And you get and then it's just one piece of paper, which is actually the last piece of paper amongst 32 pages, 32 of 32. Where's the rest of the paper? Don't sign the paper. Everything goes to your attorney. I've been in those meetings. I've been in those, you know, Chris can vouch for it. Don't sign that paperwork. Know your worth. That's all I got to say. That's a a huge red flag. If somebody wants you to sign something and doesn't want to give you the time to go figure out what's really being said in that thing, like that's, that's a big red flag. And you look at the bottom and it's like, oh, there's multiple pages to this. They don't, they don't care oh, about you. They don't happening? care what's going on. Oh, it's happened to me multiple times. I've been in three or four meetings where they've said, we need to start a new LLC because we got to get rolling on this, or we mm. need to do this because it takes a couple months. So many different excuses, multiple meetings, different, not just one investment group, multiple investment groups. We need to really get rolling on this. Mm-hmm. A lot of bullshit. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, let me send this to my attorney. I just wanted to look this over. And you can usually watch them squirm pretty quickly when you play by the rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, just know your worth, man, um, because it is literally you doing slave work for three or four years. You come out of it as a different person with no salary because most of the real good businessmen coming into this that are shady mm-hmm. will talk you into taking a very low salary or no salary. Mm-hmm. And so three, four years in, you come out with zero. You take no salary. You're behind the ball and you might not have your brand. Uh, know your worth and go to someone like Chris and have a mentor. Something Pat Gods and myself talk about a lot is having someone like Chris in your corner and then having a mentor in your corner. If you can find somebody who can help you, it can help explain how business works. You know, Chris has been that for me. And then, uh, you know, someone in my life has helped me and, and been a big help to us. But it is priceless to have someone like Chris and have a mentor in your corner that knows business, especially in this business. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And yeah. And if anybody who's watching this uh, wants to give me a call and say, you heard me on uh, first smoke of the day, happy to give you a free consultation. So Damn. Uh, shout out to the wow. first smoke Yo. of the day. That's FSOTD big. family. You already know. Any last shout outs, anything? We wrap up. I, I like. I want to say all my clients, but I feel like if I forget, you might miss one. Yeah, you'll be under I'm, fire. I'm get slapped up. Yeah, Smart, so, you don't. So all right. you know, just check so the Instagram. Shout out to You'll everybody. Yeah, yeah. Shout, shout out, out to everybody. Shout out man. to everyone. Absolutely, man. Shout out to the whole game. Shout out to Blackleaf. Nah, shout yeah. out to Pat Gods and shout out to Alien at Law because uh, this is one we wanted to do for you guys. This is one yeah. you guys need, and this is a billion dollars worth of knowledge right here. This is first smoke of the day. This is what we're about, uh, passing on knowledge to save you from hurdles in this industry. So You already know, man. Cool. It's first smoke of the day. 
episode 47. We're out. Peace. What's up? I want to take a second to talk about Grow Generation, the largest hydroponic retailer in the country, over 60 stores nationwide. Go to growgeneration.com and enter in the code first smoke. Become a part of the family. Let's go where the pros go to grow. Hey, calling all breeders and growers to the world's largest online seed bank, neptuneseedbank.com. Check out this. I got goodies from all the best breeders in the market. To go here and change your game in your garden, go to NeptuneSeedBank.com. You can get Blackleaf and you can get all the best breeders in the game. NeptuneSeedBank.com, first smoke of the day sent you. Let's talk about Athena, one of the number one nutrient companies in the world, Athena Nutrients. Blackleaf, tell them how you use IPM in your garden. Athena IPM, one of the best products out right now for IPM management. This product passed testing for legal facilities and is what is what I use in my garden. Blackleaf approved, Athena IPM. This product and all other products, athenaag.com. Go check them out, appreciate you guys. Yo, welcome to the Diamond Mine, the diamondmine.la, California source for boutique genetics, powered by yours truly, Blackleaf. And you know what that means? That means I'm bringing my best genetics into this. I'm bringing stuff I've been hiding, harboring away, stuff I haven't wanted to let out. We're bringing all that into the diamondmine.la and we're gonna offer that to California. Go on our website, hit the newsletter and see if you could rock with us. Get on board with some of our genetics and change your garden. The diamondmine.la powered by Blackleaf. We're here holding Power SI, and we want to talk a little bit about what this can do for your garden. It's a game-changing product I use in my garden. Foliar, res feeds, I recommend it to all growers. This is a game-changer. Go to Power SI and enter in the code FIRSTSMOKE to get a discount. Yo, we're right here at TLC Collective, home of the Jungle Boys, where they've been playing with fire since 2006, right here in Los Angeles, California. It's at Jungle Boys on all social media, jungleboys.com, and if you want to see for yourself, come right here to TLC Collective, man. Let's check it out.